This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 207 of the show. Today is Friday, August 23rd, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which signed up this week to support the show, and that includes CB3, David Hernandez, Jason W. Brooks, Rim Walden Tensai, and William Hudson. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com forward slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. So this week on the Humanist Report podcast, Bernie Sanders takes the gloves off after Kamala Harris went after Medicare for All while she was in the Hamptons. Obama encouraged Joe Biden to not run for president. Bill Maher smears proponents of the BDS movement. Marianne Williamson is being very wishy-washy on Medicare for All. I'll talk about that. And billionaire CEOs promised to put people over profits laughably, which then prompted Fox Business host Stuart Varney to bemoan their virtue signaling. Joe Biden sounded exactly like Donald Trump when he was confronted about his crowd sizes, and Bernie Sanders proposes new policies that would drastically change the lives of millions of Americans. And finally, we closed the week by talking to 2020 congressional candidate from Arizona, Eva Putsova. And that's what we've got planned. So hopefully you guys will uh, enjoy the show. Let's go ahead and dive right in. After the second Democratic debate, when Tulsi Gabbard exposed Kamala Harris's atrocious criminal justice record, her numbers have in fact been steadily declining. And you'd think that her campaign would currently be scrambling to figure out a way to help her recover. But it seems like they're not doing that. And Kamala's own actions have made matters exponentially worse. Because at a time when they should be trying to win voters back, it seems like she's going out of her way to prove to voters that she's not with them. So for example, CNN will be hosting a climate change town hall on September 4th, and it's going to feature eight presidential candidates. However, Kamala Harris will be conspicuously absent. Why? Well, because there is a supposed scheduling conflict here. Now, the question is, what could possibly be more important for a presidential candidate than being on national television talking about climate change. I mean, this is how you get the word out. This is how you show people that you're serious and you're taking this issue seriously and you have a plan. So what's more important than getting that national screen time? Well, according to ABC News reporter Zoreen, Senator Kamala Harris's top bundlers are hosting fundraisers for her in downtown LA and Hancock Park. Those fundraisers directly conflict with CNN's climate crisis town hall, which Harris is not attending. So in other words, it's full-on mask-off. She knows she's not going to win over Bernie Sanders' progressive voters and not even Elizabeth Warren's progressive voters, so she probably figured, look, it really makes no sense to maintain this progressive facade when they don't trust me because I've done too many things that prove otherwise, that I'm not progressive, 
And I know I need money to win, so I might as well just be the centrist that I am, embrace that persona, and attend these fundraisers in the Hamptons, because that's really what I feel I need to do to win. Money is more important right now than courting voters and proving that I am the real deal. That's essentially what's happening here. I mean... <laughs> to ditch a CNN town hall where they're talking about climate change for a fundraiser, I would be embarrassed if I were working on the uh, Kamala Harris campaign because that is not a good look. The optics are terrible. And this is not the first time that she has attended a private fundraiser with lots of rich people and elites. Because as Bloomberg reports, Teslas and Maseratis lined the street as Kamala Harris greeted guests sipping drinks from plastic cups with her name on them and eating cinnamon sugar donuts from Dreesens at a fundraiser hosted by movie executive Jamie Patrickoff and his wife Kelly as the summer of Democratic fundraisers rolled on in East Hampton. She also had events on Martha's Vineyard, the Massachusetts island that is a playground for celebrities including the Obamas, Bill Clinton, and David Letterman on Friday and Saturday. Tickets range from $100 to $2,800. I believe in capitalism, but capitalism is not working for most people, Harris said on the patio steps of the Patrikoff house, looking out at a peach orchard among flower and herb beds. She said she recognized people who have become successful by working hard and following the rules, but that the middle class needs help. So let's all contextualize this. Kamala Harris at a rich person's house at a private fundraiser is telling everyone that she believes in capitalism. <laughs> it's like she doesn't want to win. I mean, you're running in the Democratic Party primary. I mean, most strategists will tell you that the pivot doesn't come until after you win the nomination. But I mean, she's already straight up just pivoting. Embarrassing. Absolutely embarrassing. And the irony here is that this fundraiser demonstrates exactly why she shouldn't believe in capitalism. The fact that she feels the need to hang out with rich people to raise money to win an election demonstrates how capitalism has corrupted our entire political process. And basically, her argument would be, well, look, we just have to change the rules. The rules favor elites, so let's change the rules. Except the problem is that capitalism is a virus. It attacks everything that gets in its way. So if you change the rules... Capitalism will attack the rules and get them undone. That's how capitalism works. So, I mean, Kamala Harris, I, I just, I don't understand. This is a horrible campaign. Like, I clearly overestimated her in the beginning because, you know, it's clear she's someone who's incredibly charismatic. She seemed more politically astute than her predecessors in the Democratic Party, namely, you know, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton. But this is just such a bad move. It's such a bad look. And I don't know why she's doing this. Now, to be fair to Kamala Harris, there are other candidates like Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden who are also doing fundraisers in the Hamptons, but you're going to get a lot more attention if you're literally ditching a CNN town hall on climate change to hang out with your donors. That's just, that's not a good look. And at these private meetings with rich people, what is she doing? Well, she's also attacking progressive policy proposals. Harris again tried to clarify her stance on healthcare, a topic that tripped her up in the early Democratic debates. I have not been comfortable with Bernie's plan, she said of Sanders' Medicare for All proposal, which she signed on as a co-sponsor when it was introduced. She explained how a Harris administration would leave room for private insurance. So, first of all, after supporting this legislation for two straight years and reiterating her support when it was obvious she was wavering, 
She's now saying, I don't really feel comfortable with it. And second of all, she's essentially admitting that she wants to water down Medicare for all. That's what her own pseudo Medicare for all bill does. Because in order to preserve a role for private insurance companies, well, Adam Gaffney, who is the president of Physicians for a National Health Program, who is the doctor, mind you, that literally helped Pramila Jayapal write the House version of Medicare for All, he put it best in an op-ed for the nation. And he says that if you advocate for Medicare for All, you shouldn't try to actively carve out a role for private healthcare profiteers because the only way to make room for a significant role for private insurance in the American context is to make the public system paltrier or skimpier, to impose onerous copays and deductibles, or to let the rich preferentially displace working class people from hospital beds and doctor's offices. But it doesn't seem to make sense to punch holes in your own floor just to create work for a carpenter. That is particularly true true if your floor is your healthcare and your carpenter is an extractive insurance giant. In other words, any politician who says that there should be duplicative, supplementary, or complementary private insurance companies in our Medicare for All system, they're saying, they're admitting essentially, I want to water down Medicare for All so we can preserve a role for them. That's literally what Kamala Harris's bill does. That's literally what she admitted to here at this private fundraiser. Now, since she took a shot at Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, he took a direct shot at her and exposed her for the fraud that she is. He tweeted out, I don't go to the Hamptons to raise money from billionaires. If I ever visited there, I would tell them the same thing I have said for the last 30 years. We must pass a Medicare for All system to guarantee affordable health care for all, not just for those who can afford it. And that right there is what I'd like to call a KO. Because what he's saying is, Kamala Harris says one thing on television and then behind closed doors at these private fundraisers in the Hamptons, she's saying something else. Well, you know, Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, which I claimed publicly to support over the past two years and reiterated my support for it time and again, it actually makes me feel uncomfortable. He's saying, I've been saying the same thing and I would say the same thing to rich people that I say on national television. Now, again, I want to stress that it's not just Kamala Harris. I mean, Cory Booker, that same weekend, attended an event, a private fundraiser at Bon Jovi's house. You've got Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden also attending private fundraisers in the Hamptons. There's one candidate who is choosing to be principled, and it's Bernie Sanders. Now, to be fair, um, Elizabeth Warren and Tulsi Gabbard, they also don't attend these private fundraisers, although Elizabeth Warren, she said if she wins the nomination all bets are off. She's going to go all in and she's not going to unilaterally disarm. So if you truly want a candidate who's uncorrupted, who won't attend these private fundraisers where these politicians make different promises to rich people and elites behind closed doors than they'll make to you in public, well, you know who to vote for. Bernie Sanders is the one candidate with a shot of winning that's uncorrupted, that's principled, and who will actually fight for the policies he's been advocating for for decades. It's just no contest. It's a no-brainer. If you truly believe in Medicare for All, you do not vote for Kamala Harris. You vote for the candidate who's been talking about Medicare for All for decades. It's Bernie Sanders. So expectedly, Joe Biden has been an unmitigated gaffe machine, and just within the last two weeks alone, he's made approximately 8,342 gaffes. Um, 
And it's just embarrassing. Case in point. What happened when the kids from Parkland marched up to, and I, 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 I met with them, and then they went off to up on the hill when I was vice president. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. We choose truth over facts. Sir, this is a Wendy's. Are you going to order or not? I mean, look, the attack ads during the general election, they write themselves. And of course, Donald Trump is capitalizing on Joe Biden's numerous gaffes. And he is making the case that Joe Biden is not mentally fit to be president. Joe Biden is not playing with a full deck. This is not somebody you could have as your president. Now, on top of that, Donald Trump also tweeted, Joe Biden just said, we believe in facts, not truth. Does anybody really believe he is mentally fit to be president? We are playing in a very big and complicated world. Joe Biden doesn't have a clue. Now, Donald Trump is quite literally the dumbest president in American history. But if he, of all people, is able to persuasively argue that maybe Joe Biden isn't mentally fit to be president, that's just a snapshot of what's to come because he will run an incredibly aggressive campaign against Joe Biden, and in the process of defending himself, Joe Biden will trip over his own words, make 15 to 20 more gaffes in the process of one singular defense, and it's going to be a disaster. But after he's made all of these gaffes, and Donald Trump is now attacking him for it, we are still beaten over the head with the argument that he's somehow more electable. I mean, his wife was on MSNBC talking about how Joe Biden really is the more electable candidate, and we should support him as opposed to other candidates who are better at certain policies, because if we want to beat Trump, then we've got to go with Joe. You know, your candidate might be better on, I don't know, health care than Joe is. But you've got to look at who's going to win this election. And maybe you have to swallow a little bit and say, okay, I so personally like so-and-so better. But... No, Joe Biden, we all knew this was going to be his own worst enemy. And his gaffes are becoming a problem. And that's just one of the many issues. Like, if he made a bunch of gaffes but was still a pretty solid politician, had good progressive policy proposals, maybe I could give him a pass, even if I would admit that that would make him a little bit less electable. But it's gotten so bad that allies of Joe Biden are literally now floating the idea of scaling back his campaign events in order to limit the number of gaffes that he makes. So what we are witnessing is the electability argument implode before our very eyes. And if they honestly believe that they can hide him away forever, I mean, you can't. If he becomes the nominee, which I hope he does not, he's not going to be able to hide. You can hide during a primary when your numbers are up, but during the general election, if you hide away, you're going to lose. You are going to lose. And if Joe Biden actually cared as much about the country as he claims he does, he would drop out. He would drop out because he knows that he's not mentally fit to run against Donald Trump, who is someone who's also not mentally fit. But if that mentally unfit person can portray you as being less mentally fit than him, you've got a problem. You are going to give us four more years because of your ego. And what's interesting is that there's a report from the New York Times that demonstrates how Biden's ego is bigger than we thought because his BFF, Obama, actually tried to convince him before he entered the race 
to maybe not run. So as Glenn Thrush of the New York Times reports, the two men spoke at least a half dozen times before Mr. Biden decided to run, and Mr. Obama took pains to cast his doubts about the campaign in personal terms. Quote, you don't have to do this, Joe. You really don't, Mr. Obama told Biden earlier this year, according to a person familiar with the exchange. But as we all know, uh, Joe Biden did not take Obama's advice. And we all know why Obama was saying that to Joe Biden. He knows what we all know. Obama is a smart guy. He's a gaffe machine. He's not going to be able to not piss off the base. I mean, like Hillary Clinton, the longer he stays in the spotlight, the more that his favorability goes down, which is a really bad thing for a politician, which is a really bad thing during a presidential election that lasts, you know, forever. So Obama, there are reports that he has taken a sudden interest in Joe Biden's campaign. But while the media may portray that as, oh, you know, he's rooting for Joe Biden, what that is in actuality is Obama basically trying to help Joe Biden's campaign, saying, look, you guys are kind of fucking up. He has communicated his frustration that Mr. Biden's closest advisors are too old and out of touch with the current political climate, urging him to include more younger aides, according to three Democrats with direct knowledge of the discussion. In March, Mr. Obama took the usual step of summoning Mr. Biden's top campaign advisors, including the former White House communications director Anita Dunn and Mr. Biden's longtime spokeswoman Kate Bedingfield to his Washington office for a briefing on the campaign's digital and communication strategy with members of his own staff, including his senior advisor, Eric Schultz. When they were done, Mr. Obama offered a pointed reminder, according to two people with knowledge of his comments. Win or lose, they needed to make sure Biden did not, quote, embarrass himself or damage his legacy during the campaign. So Obama is literally telling Joe Biden's people, make sure that he doesn't embarrass himself or damage his legacy because he's prone to say some dumb shit. And, you know, during this campaign, he's not only going to fuck up his legacy, but my legacy as well. That's essentially what Obama is saying to Joe Biden's closest people. So the writing is on the wall. Everyone sees it. Joe Biden is a liability. Despite what everyone is telling us about electability, despite his current poll numbers, a lot can change between now and November of 2020. And if you don't think Trump will actually be able to convince people that Joe Biden is more mentally unfit than him, I mean, you'd be mistaken because even if it's clear that Donald Trump is a dumb guy, there's a difference between the American people just believing that you're dumb and believing that your mental capacity is actually diminishing. Now, Trump's mental capacity is absolutely diminishing as well, but it's just a matter of who the American people will believe more. And Trump was able to outflank Hillary Clinton from the left on certain issues like the TPP and, you know, certain foreign policy issues. So if you don't think he's going to do the same to Biden and also contend that he's not mentally fit to serve, I mean, you're in for a rude awakening. So if Joe Biden, again, cared about the country, he'd drop out because he's not going to be the best bet against Donald Trump. Am I saying that it's, you know, a sure bet that he would lose against Trump? No, but am I worried if he's the nominee? Absolutely. I think it's very possible. In fact, I'd say that Trump would be the favorite in the event Biden were the nominee. So the situation is getting scary, even though, though you know, Joe Biden's numbers are falling. They're not falling fast enough. 
they're not falling fast enough. And this poses a threat to all of us. Because let me remind you what happens if Donald Trump gets a second term. We lose the Supreme Court for decades. And we don't get just this, you know, this conservative majority where most of the rulings will be conservative. And every once in a while, you know, Roberts will side with the liberals on the court. We will get a solid conservative majority where 100% of the time the rulings will be conservative. Anything that Trump passes will be approved and upheld by this conservative majority. It would be a nightmare situation. So people need to put their egos aside and rally behind the candidates who actually can win, who have the grassroots support, and who aren't complete idiots and gaff machines. We all know who that is. It's Bernie. Bernie is the one who could beat Trump. Nobody is a sure bet, but if I had to put my money on anyone, it's Bernie Sanders. It's always difficult to beat an incumbent president, so you want to make sure that you choose the strongest candidate. Of course, electability matters, but that person is not Joe Biden. It is Bernie Sanders, who is anti-establishment, who undercuts whatever anti-establishment pseudo-populist appeal that Donald Trump has. Joe Biden needs to drop out, do himself and the country a favor by just ending the campaign right now. If you're one of the many lefties that stopped watching Bill Maher, I do have an update for you. It's still pretty bad. <laughs> you made the right decision. In fact, I'd argue that it's actually gotten worse because Bill Maher's descent into radical centrism is about to reach its logical conclusion. Because in the latest episode, if you haven't already heard, he condemned BDS and he didn't just condemn the movement and say, look, I disagree with it. Like he took it a step further and went out of his way to smear proponents of BDS. And I know that the word smear is overused, but this is exactly what he did. He claimed that proponents of BDS are historically ignorant and implied that they were anti-Semitic. He name dropped Ilhan Omar and it was just, it was a disaster. Okay, since no one's asking, answering my question, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to answer it myself. It's a bullshit purity test. BDS is a bullshit purity test by people who want to appear woke but actually slept through history class. It's That's good. Thank you. It's, it's predicated on this notion, I think it's, it's very shallow thinking, that the Jews are in Israel mostly white and the Palestinians are browner, so they must be innocent and correct and the Jews must be wrong. As, as if the occupation came right out of the blue, that this completely peaceful people found themselves occupied. Forget about the invitatas and the suicide bombings the and, and the rockets and how many wars. And uh, let me read Omar Barghouti is one of the co-founders of the movement. His quote, no Palestinian, rational Palestinian, not a sellout Palestinian will ever accept a Jewish state in Palestine. So that's where that comes from this movement, someone who doesn't even want a, Palest a Jewish state at all. Somehow this side never gets presented in the American media. It's very odd. Well, I think, I think it's absolutely become one of these litmus tests inside the hard progressive movement now that they need the, the enemies of the enemies of Trump and, and before that, the enemies of Bush, um, you know, they looked at, at uh, hard progressives looked at Israel as, an, as a strong ally for both Trump and for Bush prior to that. And so it's been brewing a long time. This has been coming up into the, you know, sort of percolating up to the progressive left for a long time. And I, and I think you're right. It is largely ahistorical. It, doesn't, it does not focus on the fact that 
that there are two players in this dance and, and two sets of behaviors in this dance you got to look at. What he said. But, <laughs> no, but I do think it, you're right on the ahistorical part. People don't understand history anymore. I mean, the entire... Well, shouldn't that come into play? <laughs> Why aren't we saying it then? I don't get it. I mean, I think that we explain, you know, I work for the New York Times. You know, we, we tend to explain the history of, the, of this conflict. But I think well, people, when they see Netanyahu, and, you know, the Democrats in Washington are still really mad about that speech that remember when John Boehner invited him and sort of went around Obama, mm -hmm. and they just feel that uh, but, this administration's okay. been playing. I mean, Saudi Arabia wouldn't let Jews into the kingdom. I'm not sure they still do. They don't. They don't? No. <laughs> okay. Isn't that something? I mean, I have a list here of Jews in the Middle East prior to 1948. Morocco, there was 250 to 350,000. These are a little old statistics, but last tally 2,500. Iraq had 150,000. Uh, in 03, they had 34. Tunisia had 100,000, and they had 900. Egypt had 75 to 80,000, then 40. Iran had 150,000, then 9,000. It's not a one-way street here, is it? And Congresswoman Omar has said things like, um, it's all about the Benjamins. Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. She apologized for it, but it's out there. Jews control the world. Jews control the money. Right. I, I can see why they don't get a hero's welcome. So the first claim he makes is that proponents of BDS are historically ignorant. And he says it's nothing more than a purity test by people who want to appear woke but actually slept through history class. Now, why are proponents of BDS historically um, illiterate? I don't know, because he doesn't actually make the case as to why they're historically ignorant. Because they're not. In fact, what he demonstrated there was that he's the one that's actually historically ignorant. Because if you'll recall, Bill, BDS was one of the main tools that helped us end apartheid in South Africa. And Ronnie Krasils, who's a Jewish South African who fought against apartheid, had this to say about the BDS movement with regard to Israel. South Africa's apartheid government banned me for life from attending meetings. Nothing I said could be published because I stood up against apartheid. How disgraceful that despite the lessons of our struggle against racism, such intolerance continues to this day, stifling free speech on Palestine. During the South African struggle, we were accused of following a communist agenda, but smears didn't deflect us. Today, Israel's propaganda follows a similar route, repeated by its supporters, conflating opposition to Israel with anti-Semitism. This must be resisted. A growing number of Jews worldwide are taking positions opposing Israel's policies. Many younger Jews are supporting the Palestinian-led boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, a peaceful mobilization inspired by the movement that helped to end and apartheid in South Africa. The parallels with South Africa are many. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu recently said, quote, Israel is not a state of all its citizens. Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people and them alone. Similar racist utterances were common in apartheid South Africa. We argued that a just peace 
could be reached, and that white people would find security only in a unitary, non-racist, democratic society after ending the oppression of black South Africans and providing freedom and equality for all. The anti-apartheid movement grew over three decades in concert with the liberation struggle of South Africa's people. To make a decisive difference in toppling the racist regime, Europeans refused to buy apartheid fruit. There were sports boycotts. Dock workers from Liverpool to Melbourne refused to handle South African cargo. An academic boycott turned universities into apartheid-free zones, and armed sanctions helped to shift the balance against South Africa's military. This required huge organizational effort, grassroots mobilization, and education. Similar elements characterize today's BDS movement to isolate apartheid like Israel. Every step is important. Pressing institutions and corporations that are complicit in Israel's crimes and supporting Palestinians in their struggle for liberation. This is not about destroying Israel and its people, but about working for a just solution as we did in South Africa. Long story short, when it comes to BDS and ignorance, historical ignorance, it's evident that there's a lot of ignorance around this issue, but it's not the proponents of BDS who are perpetuating this ignorance. It's people like Bill Maher, who refused to acknowledge that BDS was crucial in ending apartheid in South Africa. So you can say that you don't think this is the best strategy. You can suggest that, you know, this is something that isn't going to be conducive to peace. But to say that supporters of BDS are historically ignorant, when this Palestinian-led movement was modeled after the BDS movement against South Africa. I mean, that's just an idiotic comment to say. It's the definition of historical ignorance. Now, on top of that, Bill Maher also stated, it's predicated on this notion, I think it's very shallow thinking, that the Jews in Israel are mostly white, and the Palestinians are browner, so they must be innocent and correct, and the Jews must be wrong. Now, this is obviously a straw man. This is about power dynamics, because the state of Israel has more military might. They have more money. They have the weight of the United States behind them. So we're not just saying, well, you know, brown people are marginalized in many places. They're marginalized here at home. So we need to defend them just because they're brown. That's not what we're talking about here. We're looking at the power dynamic. Israel and Israel alone can end the occupation. Palestine can't say, you know what, we're going to end this occupation today. They can't do that. Why? Because there's a power imbalance here that Bill Maher refuses to acknowledge. Israel holds all the cards. So Israel is the one that determines whether or not there actually will be lasting peace. So it doesn't even make sense to say that we shouldn't put pressure on Israel. Of course, that's what you have to do. Israel has been the one, Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing government in particular, is the reason why peace doesn't even seem like it's a possibility. A two-state solution is basically not even possible anymore because of everything that has been going on, namely due to Benjamin Netanyahu, but he's not the first one, and he probably won't be the last to continue to carry out this apartheid against Palestinians. Now, this next part is grotesque because here he implies that the occupation, maybe it's not just, you know, warranted, but it's justified. He says, as if the occupation came right out of the blue, that this completely peaceful people found themselves occupied. Forget about the intifadas and the suicide bombings and the rockets and how many wars? So in other words, it's only the Palestinians 
who are the issue here. But let's pretend Israel didn't do that incursion into Gaza in 2014, where they butchered thousands of Palestinians, most of which were civilians. Let's not mention how Israel continues to demolish Palestinian homes and legally treats them like second-class citizens and responds with violence when they protest peacefully against these injustices. I mean, Bill Maher, he just doesn't care about any of that. And he thought that he got the left when he said Saudi Arabia wouldn't let Jews into the kingdom. Right. But that's wrong. That's brazenly anti-Semitic. Do you think that we'd say, no, that's fine. Saudi Arabia can do that. Of course not. Like, are you trying to suggest that the left would defend Saudi Arabia? Because we've led the charge in fighting against Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen. What have you said about that, Bill? I mean, in his mind, he believes in this caricature of lefties that we will unquestionably defend Muslims no matter what, even if they're wrong. But what he doesn't realize is that Muslims are not monolithic and they're currently being oppressed all throughout the world, in India, in Myanmar, in Israel, and elsewhere. But it's not about the ideology. We're not standing up for Muslims because we agree that everyone should be a Muslim or that we're Muslims. I mean, it's about oppression. That's what this is about. In Egypt, Christians are the ones who are oftentimes the target of discriminations. So the left doesn't support discrimination because we're against discrimination. We are against marginalized communities being oppressed by the majority. It's about power dynamics. That's what we're talking about. Bill Maher won't recognize that because Bill Maher is a disingenuous idiot. He also then implied that Ilhan Omar is anti-Semitic. Of course you're going to say that because that's what the mainstream media is saying. That's what uh, the Democratic Party establishment is also saying as well as the Republican Party. But it's funny how he agreed a lot with the Republican on his panel. Yeah. There's a reason for that. It's because you're more closely aligned with Republicans now, Bill, than you are with people who are actually on the progressive left. Now, let me just ask Bill this. If you're against BDS and you just don't think that this is a fruitful strategy, you don't think it's going to be conducive to peace, okay, we'll agree to disagree. But what's your solution then? What will actually bring about long-lasting peace? Because people who like to say, I don't support BDS, they never propose a counter solution they just condemn bds and don't offer any solutions and then they'll say something something we should have a two-state solution okay but you do realize that a two-state solution is not really feasible so the question now that we're talking about is a one-state solution with full equality for palestinians so how do we get to long-lasting peace if not bds what's your solution they like to, you know, condemn BDS, but never offer a counter solution. If we truly want peace, then I don't know what other solution will yield that outcome but BDS. It seems like the only plausible thing that so far is actually working because guess what? Israel is fighting BDS hard because they realize that this helped end apartheid in South Africa and it could very well end apartheid in Israel. So, I mean, what side of history do you want to be on, Bill? Do you want to be on the side of the oppressors or on the side of, of justice? It seems like he's he, he's not thinking about that. He doesn't care. It's just so much easier, you know, intellectually to take the side that everyone else is on. 
because then you're not going to get much pushback, you know, and you'll receive less criticism. It's just easier. So why stand up for what's right when right now it's more convenient to just join the chorus of hatred against people like Ilhan Omar for actually being bold and brave enough to take a stand that will possibly yield peace? I mean, Bill Maher is just, he is trash. I really like Marianne Williamson. I've said this before that, you know, with time, she's kind of grown on me. At first, I was really turned off because she seemed like, you know, she was one of those new age hippies and had some beliefs that were a little bit too kooky for me. But, you know, over time, I realized that she does bring something unique and valuable to the table. I mean, just her speaking about reparations in such an eloquent and beautiful way, I think that that's really important. However, that doesn't mean that just because I like her, I'm willing to overlook the various blind spots that she has because she takes some policy positions that I don't get. For example, at the debate, she disappointed a lot of progressives when she said this about Medicare for All. I, I don't know. Senator Warren said that about me specifically. I admire very much what Senator Warren has said and what Bernie has said. But I have to say, I have a, I'm normally way over there with Bernie and Elizabeth on this one. I hear the others, and I, I have some concern about that as well. And I do have concern about what the Republicans would say, and that's not just a Republican talking point. I do have concern that it will be difficult. I have concern that it will make it harder to win. And I have concern that it will make it harder to govern. Because if that's our big fight, you, then Ms. the Republicans will so shut us down on Mayor everything Buttigieg. else. Mayor now, coming from her, that argument doesn't even make sense. Because no matter what you do, Republicans will portray you as a kooky far-left extremist. In fact, right after she made that point, Pete Buttigieg chimed in and made that same exact point that I just made. I mean, she supports reparations, which Fox News has already attacked. So why is it that certain far-left ideas that will be attacked by Republicans, you know, are something that you'd be willing to support, but with regard to Medicare for All, you just can't get on board. It just, it doesn't make sense, logically speaking, and from someone who has so passionately spoken about things that the Republican Party will obviously attack her for personally, I mean, what are you doing? Why can't you get on board with Medicare for All? However, the good news is that after that debate, she spoke with Jen Uger of TYT, and she actually expressed some openness to the idea of maybe getting on board with Medicare for All after all. When I said what I said, I felt dirty after I said it. I felt like, you know, I felt like, you know, I maybe had to, I had to say it. I, so I, the needle really moved for me on that tonight. When I was hearing it from them, and having to say to myself, you're agreeing with John Delaney here. You're really being pulled over here. <laughs> I could just feel, I, I felt I was going to have people like yourself, like on my text, no. I still have a little question and I still have that little bitch Hank, on uh, so, the insurance. Let, let's talk about that for a second. I, I, since we're already mid conversation on that. Uh, so. There is this irony that did you you score so well when you talk against corporate rule and you did it again tonight and on the issue of Medicare for all you seem like you know you're stuck on that one it feels like you're almost in mid evolution I am <laughs> but that, I am I am and that that's the truth of the matter but I think the needle moved left today That's certainly a step in the right direction and I welcome anyone who is willing to have an open mind and evolve but Let's be clear here. 
You're running to be the president of the United States. If you don't come into power with a clear idea of what you want to do with regard to healthcare, you're going to get eaten alive, not just by Republicans, but by the healthcare industry who will lobby against you, who will tear you down. So even though I can respect your willingness to evolve, I mean, you should have fleshed out what you want to do before running for president. And it seemed like that was that, you know, she came out against Medicare for all, but then expressed willingness to change that position until, however, the CCI Action Fund released answers that candidates submitted in response to questionnaires that they sent out. And when it came to the question of Medicare for all, Marianne Williamson was one of the candidates that stated they do not support Medicare for all. And when it comes to the candidates' beliefs about the role private insurance should play, Bernie Sanders was the only presidential candidate that unequivocally stated we should eliminate private insurance, whereas Marianne Williamson said she believed that private insurance should still exist alongside a public option. So in other words, what she supports is a healthcare system where the healthcare profiteers will inevitably push anyone who's sick onto the public plan and then they'll just choose to sell insurance to people who are healthy because they know that that's how they're going to make millions and probably billions in profit it's a really great way to water down your own public option and make sure that it's underfunded and make sure that people who are on that public option plan have to buy supplemental insurance it just it tells me that she she doesn't really understand how healthcare would work, you know, with a public option versus Medicare for all. And by giving that answer to CCI Action Fund, it tells me that she moved back to the right after previously telling Jen Uger that she was open to the idea of embracing Medicare for all. So I tweeted about this because this is what I do. If a candidate vocalizes that maybe, you know, they're not too fully on board with Medicare for all, or maybe they're starting to waver, I call them out. So I tweeted and I said, look, why would you do this? This is not harnessing love to allow these private insurance vultures to still profit off of us and rip us off. Shame on you, Marianne Williamson. And to my surprise, she actually saw that tweet and she responded saying, please tell me where you got this. It is inaccurate. To which I responded, sharing the link with her. And I said, if this is wrong and you actually do support Medicare for all, that would be fantastic news. I would love to bring you on my podcast to discuss Medicare for All. I know you told Jang Uger you were open to it after the debate. She then replied saying, correcting this right away. Thank you for letting me know. So I'll take that as a no to my invite, which is fine. My feelings aren't hurt, but she's welcome anytime to come on my program and talk about healthcare. But with that being said, let's just talk about her wishy-washiness with regard to this issue. I mean, over the course of the last couple of weeks, she came out against Medicare for All and then signaled support for it and then presumably came out against it again and is now saying, no, actually, I'm not against Medicare for All. I mean, look, this is a number one issue for a huge percentage of Americans. You need to be clear and you need to issue a clarification. Do you or do you not support Medicare for All? You have flip-flopped four times in the course of the last couple of weeks. Where do you stand, Marianne? You have to make this clear. And it's been several days now since she responded to me and on her website, she still has not fully embraced Medicare for All. In fact, it states very clearly that she supports a public option, which indicates that her responses that her campaign or she herself submitted to CCI actions seemed to be correct after all. And maybe she just didn't want someone drawing attention 
to her response when it comes to Medicare for All because she knows that that would be unpopular. And um, look, this actually makes me mad because I reluctantly deleted the tweet after she told me that that wasn't correct because if she had a change of heart, I would be more than happy to give her credit for it. But that doesn't actually seem to be the case. And looking at her Twitter account, the only new policy position that we learned about from her is that she promised to take down a picture of Andrew Jackson once she's elected. Okay, well, great. I'm sure that removing the picture of Andrew Jackson will drastically change the lives of millions of Americans. But where do you stand when it comes to healthcare? You see, I regret deleting that tweet because it seemed like it was actually correct and she just didn't want someone drawing attention to it. That's what it seems like. Now, I am more than willing to admit that I'm wrong. In fact, I hope she proves me wrong. But in order to do that, you actually have to give us a clarification, Marianne. You have to tell us where you stand on the issue of Medicare for All. And look, I've been doing this long enough to know that whenever a candidate expresses any indication whatsoever that they're maybe backing off of Medicare for All, that means that they don't support it anymore. They support either a watered-down version or they've moved away from it entirely. Now, look, I get that a lot of people like Marianne Williamson. I like her too, but it doesn't matter if we like a candidate. What we should prioritize is the policies of the candidates, not the candidates themselves. So if a politician backs off of Medicare for All, best believe that I will be on that politician like stank on shit, because that's what we have to do. And if Marianne Williamson doesn't like that I call her out, because she's obviously being very wishy-washy on Medicare for All, flip-flopping back and forth, back and forth in a matter of weeks, then there's a simple solution to get people like me off of her back. You can do better issue a clarification, embrace Medicare for all, or don't. Either way, you need to be clear and unequivocally say whether you do or do not support Medicare for all. You can't say on your website, I support a public option, and then, you know, try to correct people when they say that you don't support Medicare for all just because you don't like that they're drawing attention to your bad policy position. You have to choose a policy and stick with it. Either you support Medicare for All and you get credit for it, or you don't support Medicare for All and you get called out for that. But you've got to pick a side. You have to be decisive and you need to state your position on this issue because being wishy-washy on something that's so crucial, you know, when people are dying every single year because they don't have insurance or maybe they have insurance but can't afford the uh, deductible, it's just, it's unacceptable. Remember when Donald Trump was first elected and all of his supporters tried to assure all of us that he definitely wasn't anti-LGBTQ+, even after he chose Mike Pence as his running mate? Because the logic was, how could he be anti-gay or anti-trans if he held up a pride flag? So, I mean, the logic is absolutely sound. I don't, I don't know how you can argue against that, but look... I just want to hear from those same people who made that argument then and hear what they have to say now after he has been president for multiple years and has since banned transgender Americans from serving in the military. And on top of that, his administration is now trying to make it legal for businesses to fire people from the LGBTQ plus community. And the scope of this discrimination that he wants to make legal is so broad that it would even potentially harm straight and cis people. Literally.
Now, in 2019, there are still a number of states where you actually can legally be fired from your job, specifically on the basis of sexual orientation and or gender identity. And about five years ago, a woman named Amy Stevens had that happen to her. She was fired after she came out to her employer as trans, and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission decided to sue her employer on her behalf, and her case has now made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And now this case involving Amy Stevens and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission also includes two gay men who were fired from their jobs specifically because they're gay. Now, for more details on this case, we go to NBC News' Chase Strange, who reports the question presented in Amy's case is relatively straightforward. Is it unlawful sex discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to fire someone because that person is transgender? Before the 2016 presidential election, the government had nearly universally said yes. But as of Friday, the United States, which initially brought the case through the EEOC, has officially switched sides. The Trump administration has weighed in to encourage the court to permit employers to fire an employee for being trans. Now, this isn't particularly surprising. Of course, this is the stance that Donald Trump's administration would take because he's a piece of shit. Shocker. But what really is unique about this story, as I alluded to earlier, is the level of zealotry, the extent to which he wants to allow discrimination. Chase continues saying, as a measure of how far the Trump administration is willing to go to make sure that transgender people have no protection from discrimination under federal law, take just one small section of their brief filed with the Supreme Court on Friday. Quote, sex stereotyping by itself is not a Title VII violation. In other words, Trump's lawyers are arguing that the section of the Civil Rights Act that prohibits employers from discriminating because of sex does not prohibit employers from discriminating on the basis of stereotypes related to sex. That is a wholesale rejection of major Supreme Court precedent and invites the court to wipe out protections that people have relied on for decades, and a ruling in their favor could drastically change workplace protections for all women, whether or not they are LGBTQ, and anyone who does not conform to the administration's preferred gender norms. That could include men with long hair and women with short hair, men who are primary caretakers of children or parents, women who wear pants and women who work outside the home or are primary breadwinners. It's almost as if the Trump administration is arguing that if trans people might get protected from employment discrimination, then it is best that there be no protections for anyone, which actually may be their endgame. So let's just pause for a moment and think about the implications of this and how broad this is. Trump wants transgender people to be discriminated against so bad that he's willing to even allow cisgender people and straight people to be caught up in said discrimination. Meaning, if you are a straight male, but you're a little bit too effeminate, well, you could be fired by your employer if they are anti-gay and they think that you're gay, or maybe you're just not straight enough. If you're a woman who's a little bit too manly, maybe you cut your hair short, you have a deeper voice, and you wear pants... Well, it doesn't matter if you're cis and straight and you have a husband, you could be caught up in this type of discrimination if Trump gets his way. I mean, this is absolutely madness. It's a classic case of 
cutting off your nose to spite your face or however that saying goes. It's just, it's preposterous. First of all, you know, for individuals to think it's acceptable for someone to be fired on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, that alone makes you a bad person. Discrimination is unacceptable. We've already had this civil rights battle in this country before. Why are we rehashing it? Why haven't we all collectively learned from history? But I mean, to go a step further and say, you know what, I'm so hellbent on allowing for discrimination against trans people that, you know, I would even permit discrimination against cisgender people and straight people if they don't abide by gender norms uh, as, you know, dictated by their employer, then that's just a new level of insanity. But I mean, this is what happens when you elect Republicans. It doesn't matter how reformed they say they are. It doesn't matter that at the Republican National Convention, he claimed that he would stand up for LGBTQ rights. Republicans are always going to take the side of history that's wrong. They're always going to side with bigots and favor oppression because that's what they've done historically. It's what conservatism is. It's to preserve the status quo. That's the whole point of, of conservatism. You support tradition. You favor, you know, traditional values. That's what conservatism is. That's the crux of conservatism. So, of course, this is what we should expect from them. This is why, to the people who tried to delude themselves into thinking that Donald Trump would not be anti-LGBTQ as all of his predecessors were, to the people who are LGBTQ who support Donald Trump. It's time for you to wake up. It's time for you to understand that the Republican Party is just not into you. They hate gay and trans people so much that they are willing to allow cisgender and straight people to be discriminated against. Just so that way, we can make sure that we're able to punish members of the LGBTQ plus community. And I wouldn't be as angered about this if, you know, Donald Trump had just said, we're going to take the opposite side that the government had previously taken, because that's what you expect. But what makes this situation awful is that there is a conservative majority on the Supreme Court who could very well say, I know what the Constitution says, but... I'm going to interpret it in this way that would allow for discrimination because we're actually going to contend that not allowing discrimination against gay and trans people is actually discrimination against religious people because if you have a particular religious ideology that says that gay people and trans people are evil, then it's bigoted to not let them discriminate. So you can justify whatever conclusion makes you feel better. It doesn't matter if you are a Supreme Court justice who's supposed to objectively interpret the law it doesn't matter. Conservatives hold a majority on the Supreme Court, so they could very well say, you know what? We agree with Donald Trump. Employers should be able to discriminate um, against members of the LGBTQ plus community. So um, we're going to leave that up to the states and allow this discrimination to continue. We're not going to strike it down. And the fact that that's even plausible in 2019, it shows that progress, it doesn't just follow you know, a straight line. Sometimes you take a step forward, but two steps back. That's just the way it is. You know, when it comes to civil rights and civil liberties, there's never an end. It's always a constant battle. And um, I think that seeing what Donald Trump has been doing, it proves that beyond a shadow of a doubt. So I know that I'm preaching to the choir whenever I talk about capitalism and how bad it is for democracy, but 
it really can't be overstated how bad capitalism is for democratic societies. It has led to the commodification of every facet of American life. Our criminal justice system, our healthcare system, even the democratic process itself has become a money-making venture when these things should be off the table. You shouldn't have to consider profits when thinking about the delivery of healthcare. You shouldn't have to consider the amount of money you need to raise if you're running to be elected. And the fact that you do, the fact that it's crucial to your electoral success, it really speaks to how damaging capitalism is. Now, people like to distinguish between, you know, capitalism and crony capitalism, or capitalism and unfettered capitalism. And the thing is, you can rein in capitalism, you can create new rules. The problem is that capitalism is a virus that attacks those rules. So you may be able to, you know, curtail capitalism and, you know, assuage the fears of people, you know, make it a little bit softer around the edges for a couple of decades, but it always waters down the rules that hold it back and it unleashes its disgusting force on our society. It corrupts culture. It pits Americans against each other. So I think a lot of people are waking up. People in my generation, we are increasingly anti-capitalist and we are more socialist. So the writing is on the wall. The next generation will soon come to power and these large multinational corporations who have rigged the system are realizing capitalism is currently experiencing a PR crisis. And if we don't do something, you know, um, there's going to be regulation and we will be crushed once the next generation comes to power. You know, the Democratic primary voters are on the cusp of electing someone like Bernie Sanders and even Elizabeth Warren who are vowing to rein us in. So if we don't act, then things are going to be a lot worse for us. So they've come up with a solution. CEOs in different industries have decided that they're vowing to put people over profits and they're going to make that their number one goal. <laughs> I don't believe this like at all, just so you know. So Jack Kelly of Fortune explains, On Monday, the Business Roundtable, an association of over 180 chief executive officers of America's leading companies, headed by the well-respected CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, released a statement that could radically change the mission of corporations and the lives of their employees. For over 600 years, capitalism has reigned supreme. Companies were expected to generate the most profits for their shareholders. The employees, vendors, and communities where they operate were of lesser concern. All that mattered was the bottom line and how much the shareholders earned on their investments. Their pursuit of profits prevailed over everything else. The Business Roundtable recommended that corporations must change the way they operate and now focus on their employees, the places where they conduct business, and their vendors to ensure that everyone is treated fairly. This will come before the needs and wants of the shareholders. Now allow me to translate what they're saying here. Please, please, please don't elect Bernie Sanders. Don't elect anyone who's going to impose new regulations on us and tax us more heavily. We promise we will regulate ourselves. We promise that we will treat our workers fairly. Stop exploiting them. Just please, for the love of God, uh, don't impose any new laws that would force us to do all of these things that we're telling you we're going to do. 
I mean, how dumb do they think we are? They honestly think that we believe them when they tell us that they're willing to put people over profits when they have a fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value. You honestly believe that with no new regulations, with no new laws, you're just going to willy-nilly do the right thing? Really? And let's look at the uh, four main commitments that they're vowing to uphold. So they want to value their customers. They want to fairly compensate their employees. They want to deal fairly and ethically with vendors. Uh, they want to support the communities that they work within. I mean, come on. They literally think that we are stupid enough to believe that they're going to rein themselves in, that they're capable of self-regulation. I mean, I have no words. Of course, that's not possible. That's not the way things work. That's not the way that capitalism functions. So, of course, I don't believe them. And I actually find it patronizing and insulting that they think that we're this stupid. They think that this will suffice, that they'll just say, you know what, we're going to take your advice. We're going to put people over profits. Sure, Jan. Now, my favorite part, which really, it says everything you need to know, <laughs> is when you look at the list of CEOs included here, because that will tell you everything that you need to know. These are the individuals who have signed this pledge. This includes the CEO of American Airlines, American Express, Bank of America, Citigroup, JP Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, whose employees literally have to piss in jugs so that way they can be more productive. Uh, Tim Cook of Apple, who, you know, in China at the factories where they manufacture iPhones, they literally have to put up suicide nets because the conditions are so poor. You have big pharma CEOs, Philip Blake of Bayer, David Cardani of Cigna, Albert Borla of Pfizer. You have defense contractors, Dennis Mullenberg of Boeing, Marilyn Hewson of Lockheed Martin, Thomas Kennedy of Raytheon, Kathy Warden of Northrop Grumman, AT&T CEO Randall Stevenson, Robert Dudley, CEO of BP, Michael Wirth, the CEO of Chevron, Darren Wood, CEO of ExxonMobil, the CEO of, of Comcast. I mean, come on, come on, people. Who believes this? These are the heads of companies that exploit workers, rig the economy, buy off politicians, manufacture bombs that are dropped on the heads of babies. Do they honestly think that we're stupid enough to believe that they are willing to put people over profits? I mean, that entire notion is antithetical to what they believe in. If you want to put people over profits, Lockheed Martin you have to dismantle your entire corporation because you make the bombs that kill people. You buy politicians in order to make sure that we are in perpetual war. What are you talking about? This is so unbearably patronizing and just such a brazen attempt at virtue signaling for the purpose of preventing future regulation that it makes me feel nauseous. Look, if you want to do better, we need to see less talk and more action. Start by taking a substantial pay cut. Are they willing to do that? Don't think so. Uh, stop buying politicians. Stop lobbying members of Congress to do your bidding. Start there. Start paying all of your workers a living wage. The fact that you are saying you're going to do all of these things means nothing. Because everything that you have done demonstrates that you only prioritize profits. Because that's what you do. That's what the whole goal of capitalism is. 
You are about making money. So for us to believe that you would actually change your actions and prioritize people over profits without regulation is absurd. Maybe you'll dupe some people. The author of this article that I read to you, um, what's his name? Jack Kelly. He seemed like, you know, uh, this is some huge revolutionary thing. People like that may buy it who have already drunk in the capitalist Kool-Aid, but I think most people are not dumb enough to believe that you'd be willing to just do the right thing because you feel like it. No, of course these large multinational corporations are not going to do the right thing because they feel like it. You have to make them do the right thing with regulation and laws, not by hoping that they'll, you know, choose to just start being more ethical. That's not the way that capitalism works. That's not the way that anything works. What a joke. This is just laughable. So recently on the podcast, we talked about the new business roundtable pledge, which includes um, dozens of billionaire CEOs, and they say that they will start putting people over profits. Now, this is laughable. Um, it's evident that all they're trying to do is communicate to a potential progressive president that, you know, they're going to try to behave so you don't have to impose any new taxes or regulations on them because they're going to self-regulate. Now, this included the likes of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, Apple CEO Tim Cook, the heads of the defense industry, big oil companies, you know, the CEOs of big banks. It's something that serious people don't take seriously and shouldn't take seriously because we know what they're trying to do. This is nothing more than virtue signaling. But since the people over at Fox Business are not serious people, they did take this very seriously. So Stuart Varney actually spoke out against this pledge that was just put out by the so-called titans of industry. And he's going to complain that this is a bad idea because you definitely should not put people over profits. You should put profits over people. Like, I'm not joking. He's literally going to make the case for what is essentially late-stage capitalism. Take a look. I don't know whether it was an image-polishing effort or a genuine shift by business, but I'm not wild about the statement from the Business Roundtable. The very top echelons of American business issued a statement pledging awareness of social issues. They want companies to be, first and foremost, nice. They want business to be sensitive to customers, employees, suppliers, communities, and almost as an afterthought, <laughs> shareholders. Maybe we should remind the titans of business that it is shareholders who own the company and it is their money that is at risk. There's a lot wrong with this. If shareholder capital is diverted outside the company, future performance suffers, and that means all stakeholders suffer. Innovation suffers. The competitive ethic suffers. I don't know about you, but I invest in companies that I think will make a lot of money, and that's what I want them to do. So the company will make progress, and I'll share in it. That's why I invest. Now, we all have our own personal values. I wouldn't invest in a tobacco company, for example, but that's not what these executives are talking about. They're engaged in a reversal of corporate priorities. It doesn't look like profit is job one these days. I can understand where this is coming from. It's a deliberate softening of capitalism's image, and that's a response to the attacks from presidential candidates, especially Senators Warren and Sanders. Who knows who wins in 2020? Business appears to be hedging its bets.
I have news for America's business royalty. The left has no time for you. No amount of softening and promising to be nice will do you any good at all. If the socialists win, you're toast. So get real and support vigorous capitalism, which made America great and prosperous in the first place. Talk about a hot take. <laughs> Stuart Varney is so smug. I just, I probably hate him more than 95% of the Fox News hosts because he just, he's so arrogant and he doesn't even listen to the way that he sounds and how selfish he comes off. Like you're literally advocating for what is tantamount to late stage capitalism. And it's just, how do you think you're going to win people over? This is a big yikes, right? Because if capitalism is currently undergoing a PR crisis, do you honestly believe that making the case that we should put profits over people is going to help capitalism's cause if you truly support capitalism then really what you should be arguing is to actually impose more regulations and make it a little bit softer around the edges because that's what would get most people off of your backs now look i know and a lot of people know that if you impose new regulations on capitalism Capitalism is like a virus. It will attack those new rules. It will attack and undo anything that stands in its way. But at least, you know, if you want to win people back, that's the argument that he should make. Sure, you know, I think capitalism maybe is a little bit too unfettered. Maybe we should rein it in a little bit. But what he's saying here is, um, no, capitalism is just fine the way it is. And if you don't like it, then fuck you. That's basically what he's saying here in a nutshell. He says, I don't know about you, but I invest in companies that I think will make a lot of money, and that's what I want them to do. Great, but um, you see, the thing is that most people don't invest in companies. Most people don't have all of these investments, and furthermore, I don't give a shit if you want to make money, okay? I don't care where you're investing. If these large multinational corporations are going to pollute the planet, rig the economy, crash the economy, then I don't care if us imposing new regulations on them doesn't help you make more money, Stuart. I don't care. His salary at Fox News is about 600000 a year, I believe. He has a net worth of $10 million. I think you're going to be okay, bud. I think you'll survive if we impose some more regulations on capitalism. He also says, now we all have our own personal values. I wouldn't invest in a tobacco company, for example, but that's not what these CEOs are talking about. They're engaged in a reversal of corporate priorities. It doesn't look like profit is job number one these days. First of all, I don't know what world you're living in because of course that's what they care about. That is their number one priority and you can see it in their actions. So to say this, it just makes you look dumb, to be frank, Stuart. It makes you look like a fucking dumbass. Because to say that it doesn't seem like the CEOs, the titans of industry, don't care about profits. I mean, what world are you living in? When Apple has to put up suicide nets around sweatshops because conditions are so terrible that workers in China would rather kill themselves than continue working under those horrible conditions? What exactly do you think that they're valuing here, Stuart? People or profits? When Amazon warehouse workers have to piss in bottles to save time, do you think that they're valuing people over profits? When just 100 companies emit the lion's share of greenhouse gas emissions and ruin the planet just so they can increase shareholder 
their value? I mean, do you not see that as them putting profit above everything else, including the planet that they live on? I mean, if you honestly believe that they're going to start not looking out for the bottom line, you're just delusional. You're absolutely delusional, and you don't even understand the way that capitalism works, which is the system that you shill for. So, the fact that he would be outraged by this when really he should be applauding this, even if we all know it's not going to amount to anything, but if you don't at least acknowledge, even if you like capitalism, that it's currently undergoing a PR crisis, you're just fucking stupid. I don't know how to be polite about this. I can't not sound like a dick, but you're a fucking dumbass, Stuart. Because a lot of people can finally see that capitalism is not working out for them. Hence why a large portion of millennials support socialism. Now, in the event we hypothetically lived in a democratic socialist society, and for whatever reason, it started to erode, institutions became corrupted, I would realize as a democratic socialist that we would have to reform that system because people are not liking it. They're growing dissatisfied with it. But Stuart Varney, what does he do? Well, he just pretends like, you know, nothing is happening. This is that meme with the dog in the house that's on fire saying this is fine, personified here with Stuart Varney. So everything he said there is wrong, but there's one exception. He was absolutely right about one thing. Quote, the left has no time for you. No amount of softening and promising to be nice will do you any good at all. If the socialists win, you're toast. You're damn fucking right. That's the first thing I've ever heard Stuart Varney say. That's correct. So as Joe Biden's cognitive functions and mental capacity continues to deteriorate, very obviously before our very eyes, I hate to say it, but he is beginning to sound more and more like Donald Trump. You know, everything from his braggadocious nature to even his cadence, like everything he says seems very Trumpian. And the way that I kind of view him is as a Trumpified version of Hillary Clinton, because when it comes to policy, he's basically... You know, Hillary Clinton may be slightly to the left of Hillary Clinton, but he acts like Donald Trump. He has this pseudo-tough guy persona, and it's really off-putting. But I wanted to share a clip from Fox News, and I usually don't like to talk about Fox News unless they're giving me, you know, an opportunity to make fun of them. But in this clip, a miniature version of Steve Ducey is going to ask him about his small crowds in comparison with his opponents. And the response that he is going to give here is going to be just so Trumpian that it's honestly embarrassing because he's not just going to deny, you know, that his crowds are small, but he's going to just flat out lie and uh, reject reality. Biden's first event of the afternoon was at a smaller venue, but there was still room in the back. So I had a chance to ask him what he thinks when he sees a more progressive primary candidate like Elizabeth Warren on TV with a crowd in the thousands. No, no. It depends on what the nature of the event is. What I'm trying to do is go around from town to town, and I'm drawing as bigger crowds or bigger than anybody. Have you seen anybody draw bigger crowds than me here in this state? Yes. Oh, you have? Where? In Des Moines. In Des Moines? In Des Moines. And the former vice president didn't seem to like that because a few minutes later, he singled me out to say he thought I was going to be unfair to him no matter what, but that he can handle it because he's a big boy. So, directly in the middle of that sentence, 
he stopped himself and incorrectly decided to say, no, my crowds are actually bigger than anybody. So rather than just saying, look, I'm drawing as big of crowds as them, which still would have been incorrect, he decided to take it a step further and be even more incorrect when we all can see the videos and the photographs. And um, believe it or not, after the cameras stopped rolling right there, he apparently went on to uh, talk about his poll numbers. That's according to Minnie Ducey. So, I mean, he's just morphing into the Democratic version of Donald Trump. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I mean, what do you say about this? Do you honestly believe that this narcissist is going to be the one who will motivate Democratic Party voters to get out and vote for him over Donald Trump? I mean, look, we're all on a gigantic ship right now. That's the size of the Titanic called the Joe Biden, and we are sailing straight into an iceberg. It's 2016 all over again, because Hillary Clinton also, there was just no enthusiasm around her campaign, and I would argue that so far, based on what I've seen, there's even less enthusiasm, if you could imagine, around Joe Biden. But the way that Hillary Clinton kind of argued against that lack of enthusiasm in the small crowds was to say, look... I'm more electable, so um, it doesn't matter if there's no enthusiasm for me. If you want someone who's going to beat the Republican, you've got to vote for me. And, you know, that's no different. We're being beaten over the head with that same electability argument. Just the other day, Jill Biden, Joe's wife, was talking about how even if, you know, you don't necessarily like my husband and you think that there are other candidates with better health care proposals than his, <coughs> Bernie Sanders, <coughs> you know, you still should vote for him because we all can agree that the number one goal is to be Donald Trump. So, you know, Joe Biden is now running television ads that reinforce that narrative. Uh, the mainstream media, MSNBC, is running countless segments reinforcing that narrative. So it's the same thing, and nobody's going to learn their lesson. There is no enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton, but everyone said, you know what, vote for her because she's more electable. She lost. And, you know, what's crazy is that in the event Joe Biden were the nominee, God forbid, and he ended up losing to Donald Trump, Democratic strategists, you know, television pundits, they still would not learn their lesson. In the event, in 2024, there was another corporate centrist Democrat that, you know, was not very popular. There was no enthusiasm for him or her. They would still say that we should vote for that individual based on electability. And I truly believe they would be stupid enough to do that. Because, I mean, 2016 wasn't that long ago. You'd think that Everyone would have learned their lesson. You'd think that they'd see the writing on the wall currently, but they don't. And look, this lack of enthusiasm, this isn't something that's new for Joe Biden. Since he announced his campaign, there has been a considerable lack of enthusiasm. And this article from Politico explained that even if he's polling high enough, you know, to be considered a frontrunner, well, despite his position in the polls, he does not have very large crowd sizes. Attendance at the former vice president's launch rally paled next to some of his rivals. In his first Iowa visit, he didn't match the crowds that greeted Elizabeth Warren or even the less well-known Pete Buttigieg in their initial visits. So far, he's kept his events to smaller venues where there's little danger of empty seats. In the eyes of Biden's progressive critics, as well as President Donald Trump, who has publicly mocked him for it, the seeming lack of excitement or teeming masses at his events is a leading indicator of a lack of passion for his candidacy. 
quote, I started to think the polls were wrong about Biden because it's not what we're seeing on the ground, said Amy Allison, founder and president of She the People, a national network devoted to promoting women of color. And that hasn't changed. The electability argument hasn't resonated with more people. It's not drawing out more people. And in fact, you know, the power and level of persuasiveness of that electability argument is going down because people can see that this man is a buffoon and he is making, what, 10 gaffes a day? I mean, I'm being hyperbolic, but you get the point. This is not how you win an election if you truly are committed to defeating Donald Trump. And even Joe Biden's own supporters, if you talk to them, there's zero enthusiasm there among his own supporters. Now, this is anecdotal, but Jordan Sheridan attended the official Joe Biden campaign event during the second Democratic debate. Listen to how enthusiastic one of Joe Biden's supporters sounded when uh, he was talking about Joe Biden. What, what was your favorite line of Biden tonight? Uh, I'm very glad he said malarkey once again. That's oh, ma malarkey was a big one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so anything on policy or substance or just malarkey? Oh, just malarkey. I mean, honestly, I haven't been, I haven't been that impressed. I'll be completely honest. I buy it. No, not really. Everyone, but you're wearing his shirt. It was free. I just wanted. I just want people to know. I did not put him up to say this. This is your honest answer. Yeah, I mean, I like Biden's policies, but his performance tonight has not been the best. Let me ask you because what I find kind of troubling, just this is the official watch party. What I find troubling is, you know, I covered the Bernie event last night, and it was packed, and nobody left. But here, there's not a lot of energy, and everybody's leaving before the party's over. I mean, as I said, I think it's kind of due to his lack of flair and performance that I was expecting tonight. I think a lot of people have similar opinions on that, and that's why everyone's kind of leaving as soon as they are. And what got you, uh, I know you're kind of not feeling it tonight, what have you liked as far as his policies before tonight? Well, I like his idea of health care specifically, because like he's really trying to keep it like Obamacare sort of centric. And I think that was like, I think that's a good idea. I like Harris's plan as well. I like the idea of like, you can choose to have like Medicare if you want it, but not forcing it on anyone like Sanders or Warren is proposing, that sort of thing. So I like it. But you do know most people uh, on Obamacare are having difficulty paying for it. Yeah. You've got me there. I'm <laughs> Biden 2020. Whoa. <laughs> Jordan's reaction right there had me just in tears. Um, because, I mean, like, what do you say? People are clearly not that enthusiastic. And he posted along, I think it was like 20 to 30 minute version of uh, that type of video where he's interviewing people at the event. And people just say, you know, I, there's a lot of issues with him, you know, the crime bill, but he seems more electable. And when you have MSNBC shoving that narrative down people's throats, of course, they're going to begin to believe, all right, maybe I should care about electability because this is what MSNBC tells me. And, you know, I'm just casually following politics. I don't know. So I guess I'll go with the person who I know uh, it, it has a good chance of beating Donald Trump based on what people are saying. And this is just, it's a recipe for disaster. Now, getting back to his comment about his crowds, I'm going to play that for you again. 
what he says, and then I'm going to juxtapose his comments with Donald Trump's comments and what Donald Trump said about his inauguration crowd size. And I'm drawing as bigger crowds are bigger than anybody. Have you seen anybody draw bigger crowds than me here in this state? We had a crowd. I looked over that sea of people, and I said to myself, wow. And I've seen crowds before. Big, big crowds. That was some crowd. When I looked at the numbers that happened to come in from all of the various sources, we had the biggest audience in the history of inaugural speeches. Now, Donald Trump said this after we all were able to see photographic evidence that demonstrated that is a verifiably untrue statement. But he still made that claim. And the same is true for Joe Biden. He's still going to argue that his crowds are the largest, so he is like morphing into Donald Trump before our very eyes. And some strategists are going to say, you know, in response to my argument that he's becoming a Trumpified version of Hillary Clinton, they're going to say, well, sure, that's great, right? Because we need a left equivalent to beat Donald Trump. No, no, no. We don't need a left-wing version of Donald Trump. We need someone who is the antithesis of Donald Trump's far-right policies. You all know who that individual is. There's one candidate in this race who I think would have the best bet at beating Donald Trump. Nobody's a sure bet. Nobody's a guarantee. But the person who I have the most confidence in is Bernie Sanders, not Joe Biden. Because when you look at Bernie Sanders, there's actual enthusiasm there. People are motivated to get out and vote. You know, younger millennials who are burdened by student loan debt, they may come out and vote for the first time knowing that he wants to cancel their student loan debt. But with Joe Biden... He's basically saying, look, I'm, you know, I'm for the status quo. I'm not going to change very much. And the lives of elites who are taking advantage of the have-nots, you know, their lives aren't going to be fundamentally different if I'm president. I mean, who do you think is going to be the more electable person? The person who actually can excite the base, which is what you need to win when Donald Trump excites the Republican base, or someone who does not excite the base? I mean, I shouldn't even have to ask this question because we already tested that electability theory. If the writing is on the wall, if someone is incredibly unpopular, if they're not drawing very large crowd sizes, don't make the electability argument just based on polls. Because Hillary Clinton was leading too. And we all know how that turned out. So, I mean, let's not make that same mistake that we did in 2016, guys. Please. So this week, Bernie Sanders came out with two sweeping reform plans, one for criminal justice, one for democracy in the workplace, and I can't cover them in the way that I regularly will just cover things by reading an article because these plans are so comprehensive that I actually want to just go over the plans themselves um, and just have this up on the screen as a resource because I think that would probably be the best way to... Um, educate you about this because it's just it's so thorough and i'll link to these down below so you can read them for yourself now of course i can't go over everything but these plans are absolutely solid you know there's some areas for improvement with regard to the criminal justice plan but overall this is still fantastic now um basically his overall goal is to end profiteering in our criminal justice system i think that he has made this clear from the beginning but here's what he wants to do ban for-profit prisons that absolutely is a no-brainer he wants to make prison phone calls and other communications such as video chats free of charge again this is a no-brainer 
Um, I don't know how this would even be controversial or if it is. I think that, you know, just because you are serving time doesn't mean that we have to remove humanity away from you and strip you of your dignity. Uh, incentivize states and localities to end police departments' reliance on fines and fees for revenue. This is huge. Audit the practices of commissaries and use regulatory authority to end price gouging and exorbitant fees, uh, remove the profit motive from our re-entry system and diversion community supervision uh, or treatment programs and ensure people leaving incarceration or participating in diversion community supervision or treatment programs can do so free of charge. This is so important here because one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the recidivism rate in the United States is absolutely astronomical, and it's because you serve your time, you get out, and maybe you lose contact with a bunch of people, and you don't have the resources needed to get off of your feet, and, you know, different types of programs and whatnot that could help you, treatment programs and educational programs, you just you don't have access to them. So a lot of times people have to resort to crime again or feel the need to resort to crime and they end up back in prison. So trying to tackle recidivism is incredibly important and I'm glad that Bernie Sanders included that here. Now, he also wants to end cash bail. This is another no-brainer. It's a system that I don't even know why we have it. It just favors the rich because of course, being free when you were arrested will entirely hinge on if you have the money to get out. Of course, rich people will pay their bail and poor people won't be able to do that. So this disproportionately favors the rich. Of course, we should end cash bail. Um, he wants to you end the use of secured bonds in federal criminal proceedings, provide grants to states to reduce their pre-trial detention populations which are particularly high at the county level and require states to report on outcomes as a condition of renewing their funding withhold funding from states that continue the use of cash bail systems so this is something that he basically has to do because these prison systems they're run at the state level so at the federal level i don't believe that he can compel them to end cash bail so basically what he's doing is you know this carrot stick approach and in this instance he's using the stick to say look we'll withhold funding if you still use this antiquated cash bail program that just favors the rich um that's important ensure that alternatives to cash bail are not leading to disparities in the prison system. Again, very forward thinking. So far, everything about this is absolutely amazing. And now here's where we get to a really important part. Ensure law enforcement accountability and robust oversight. So rescind former Attorney General Jeff Sessions' guidance on consent decrees. Revitalize the use of Department of Justice investigations, consent decrees, and federal lawsuits to address systemic constitutional violations by police departments. Ensure accountability, strict guidelines, and independent oversight for all federal funds used by police departments and federal programs that use military equipment to local police forces. Of course, demilitarizing the police is important. Create a federally mandated database of police use of deadly force. Provide grants for states and cities to establish civilian oversight agencies with enforceable accountability mechanisms. Establish federal standards for the use of body cam cameras, including establishing third-party agencies to oversee the storage and release of police videos. Very, very important. Mandate 
criminal liability for civil rights violations resulting from police conduct, limit the use of qualified immunity to address the lack of criminal liability for, crim for civil rights violations resulting from police misconduct, conduct a U.S. Attorney General's investigation whenever someone is killed in police custody. Very, very important because I don't expect someone who is investigating someone that they know on a personal level to be objective. You know, you can't neutrally administer justice if you know that person. I couldn't investigate my friend and be fair, right? So this is important. Ban the use of facial recognition software for policing. I would like him to take this a step further and just ban the use of facial recognition software, period. Um, Ron Placone has done a number of videos about this. Fight for the Future has kind of taken this up as an initiative. And for those of you who don't know Fight for the Future, they are a huge net neutrality advocacy organi organization. Um, so taking it a step further would be great, but this is a new issue, and I would imagine that Bernie Sanders would evolve with new information. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this because this is really long, but um, I wanted to get to the bulk of it. Provide more support to police officers and create a robust non-law enforcement alternative response system. And this force would emphasize de-escalation. Now, every single police officer should be trained to de-escalate and not further escalate, but I see what he's doing here, and I like this. Um, right to counsel. Very, very important. Triple national spending. Um, review current salaries and workloads. Set a minimum starting salary for public defenders. Create a national formula to assure populations have a minimum number of public defenders. Um, establish federal guidelines and goals for a right to counsel, including policies that reduce the number of cases overall. Create a federal agency to provide support and oversight for state public defense services. Um, okay, going down, rescind former Attorney General Jeff Sessions' orders on prosecutorial discretion and low-level offenses. You know, rescinding these guidelines from Jeff Sessions, that will be easy. You don't have to pass that with a bill. So I would imagine that a lot of this he'll be able to check off before this even gets passed, you know, um, when it becomes a bill. Limit absolute immunity for prosecutors, which is used to shield wrongdoers from liability and the practice of jailing material witnesses. Place a moratorium on the use of the algorithmic risk assessment tools in the criminal justice system until an audit is completed. As president, he will also abolish the death penalty. Reverse the Trump administration's guidance on the use of death penalty drugs with the goal of ending the death penalty at the state level. Stop excessive sentencing with the goal of cutting the incarcerated population in half and mandatory sentencing minimums. Reinstate a federal parole system and end truth in sentencing. People serving long sentences will undergo a second look process to make sure their sentence is still appropriate. End three strikes laws. Invigorate and expand the compassionate release process. Expand the use of sentencing alternatives. Revitalize the executive clemency process by creating an independent clemency board. Uh, stop the criminalization of homelessness and spend more than $25 billion over five years to end homelessness. And with regard to the war on drugs, legalize cannabis, expunge past marijuana convictions, provide people struggling with addiction the health care they need, decriminalize possession of the drug that treats opioid addiction. Not even going to try to pronounce that word. That is a doozy right there. Uh, legalize safe injection sites and needle exchanges around the country and support 
pilot programs for supervised injection sites, which have shown to substantially reduce drug overdose deaths. This is so important, so forward-thinking. This is going to be, you know, something that he'll be attacked for. But this is crucial, and it does work. I'll raise the threshold for when drug charges are federalized. Um, work with states to fund and pursue innovative overdose prevention techniques, institute a full review of the current sentencing guidelines, and end the sentencing disparity between crack and cocaine. Okay, so this is very long. Um, let me just go through the uh, Cliff Notes version here. Um, treat children like children. That means we ban the prosecution of children under the age of 18. I feel like this is a no-brainer. Um, reform our decrepit prison system to make jails and prisons more humane. Who would be against this? You know, end solitary confinement. This is so important because that is torture. That is absolutely cruel and unusual punishment. He wants living wages for prison labor. No more slave labor. The right to vote. All voting age Americans must have the right and meaningful access to vote. This is going to be controversial because, as you all know, he was attacked on a debate stage when he was asked, should the Boston bomber have the right to vote? Now, of course, the, the way that that's framed is absolutely disgusting, and I don't like that. But really, what you have to make the case for is if we are Democrats, small-D Democrats, we have to be radically committed to the idea of universal suffrage. That means every single person in this country has the right to vote. It doesn't matter if they did something that's atrocious. It doesn't matter if we personally disagree with them. Every person has the right to vote. It's a matter of principle. So he will get attacked for this as well. Doesn't matter. This is the right policy prescription. We have to allow people the right to vote. Okay. Ensure a just transition post-release. So um, let's see here. Reversing the criminalization of disability, investing in our communities, uh, federal jobs guarantee, $15 minimum wage. This is all so important, so comprehensive, and I look forward to seeing um, criminal justice organizations vet this if they haven't already. Um, but this seems incredibly, incredibly in-depth, comprehensive. This would change so many people's lives for the better. Like this, really, it can't be overstated. This would be a game changer. This would be amazing. This is the criminal justice reform that we need. One glaring omission, though, that I will say I wish he included is the decriminalization of sex work. Now, previously, he stated that he was open to that. In fact, I have a quote because he was asked about this not too long ago. So, Eris Foley of The Hill reports, Democratic presidential candidate and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders would consider decriminalizing sex work if elected in 2020. Bernie believes that decriminalization is certainly something that should be considered, Sanders Deputy Communications Director Sarah Ford told Vice News in a statement on Thursday. Other countries have done this, and it has shown to make the lives of sex workers safer. So the fact that he's open to it is important, but he didn't include that here, so that's that's disappointing. Like, don't just be open to it. Embrace it, Bernie. You know, I, I'm not too worried that, you know, he'd be against it because, again, he already showed his willingness to consider it, but he should have included that here in this bill. Um, but Bernie Sanders, he does evolve. I mean, in 2016, he did not support student loan debt cancellation, and that was basically my main criticism of him. Look, you have this great plan to make 
colleges tuition-free, but what about those of us who already have all of this student loan debt? So you've got to do something for them. And he listened. So I believe that this is something that he would embrace. I just just wish that he included that here, but I don't want to be too picky because this is still good, but just some area for improvement. Now getting to his workplace democracy plan. So basically, this is a very pro-union plan. Union workers, they earn 22% more than the average worker, so this is really important. Bernie's pro-union plan would provide unions the ability to organize through a majority sign-up process, allowing the National Labor Relations Board to certify a union if it receives the consent of the majority of eligible workers. Under Bernie's plan, when a majority of workers in a bargaining unit sign valid authorization cards to join a union, they will have a union. If employers refuse to negotiate in good faith, we will impose strong penalties on those companies. Enact first contract provisions to ensure companies cannot prevent a union from forming by denying first contract. Eliminate the right to work for less. Bernie's plan would repeal Section 14B of the Taft-Harley Act, which has allowed 28 states to pass legislation that eliminates the ability of unions to collect dues from those who benefit from union contracts and activities, undermining the union's representation of workers. This right here has decimated unions, so this is absolutely crucial, and I don't think this would be too controversial with regard to Democratic Party politics. I think that even corporate Democrats would get on board with this, but still, it's important. Under Bernie's plan, companies will no longer be able to ruthlessly exploit workers by misclassifying them as independent contractors or deny them overtime by falsely calling them a supervisor. Looking at you, Uber, this would directly affect those companies. Make sure that employers can no longer use franchisee or contractor arrangements to avoid responsibility and liability for workers. Give federal workers the right to strike. Make sure every public sector union in America has the freedom to negotiate. Require companies that merge to honor existing union contracts. Deny federal contracts to employers that pay poverty wages, outsource jobs overseas, engage in union busting, deny good benefits, and pay CEOs outrageous compensation packages. Ban the permanent replacement of striking workers. Protect the pensions of workers. This is also very important. We've kind of transitioned to a 401k system in lieu of pensions, and guess what's happening? People can't really retire. People have to work until they die, essentially. So, you know, protecting pensions is very, very important. Stop corporations from forcing workers to attend mandatory anti-union meetings as a condition of continued employment. Establish federal protections against the firing of workers for any reason other than just cause. Create a sectoral collective bargaining system with wage boards to set minimum standards across industries. Guarantee the right to unionize for all workers. Allow the sec allow for secondary boycotts. Expand and update the persuader rule. This plan would require companies to disclose anti-union information they disseminate to workers and provide for equal time for organizing agents. Now, I really like this. Because, you know, if you um, if you apply for a new job and you're going through training and orientation, you may be shown an anti-union video. When I worked at Walmart, we were shown this brazenly anti-union video. It was just pure propaganda. And I was, like, shocked by it. You know, I was, um, I was taken aback by it 
because I didn't expect them to be so in your face with the anti-union rhetoric. And I, you know, it caught me off guard and I talked to my coworkers about it and they didn't know about unions because, you know, they're, they're, they're given this misinformation. It's fed to them. So they, they don't know what to think. So they're told it's bad. So they just say, all right, it must be bad. So this is good. And probably my favorite part here is this, a fair transition to Medicare for all. This kneecaps one of the main critiques that we're seeing from corporate Democrats about Medicare for all. Bernie will require that resulting healthcare savings from union negotiated plans result in wage increases and additional benefits for workers during the transition to Medicare for all. When Medicare for all is signed into law, companies with union negotiated healthcare plans would be required to enter into new contract negotiations overseen by the National Labor Relations Board. Under this plan, all company savings that result from reduced healthcare contributions from Medicare for all will accrue equitably to workers in the form of increased wages or other benefits. Furthermore, the plan will ensure that union-sponsored clinics and other providers are integrated within the Medicare for All system and kept available for members. Unions will still be able to negotiate for and provide wraparound services and other coverage not duplicative of the benefits established under Medicare for All. And this is really important because when you hear people like Michael Bennett say, well, look, unions fought hard for these healthcare plans and now you're just going to take that away from them so all that work was for nothing, what Bernie Sanders is saying is no, that's not all going to be for nothing. And you still want to fight to provide some type of wraparound services, um, you know, so long as it's not duplicative, then that's fine. <laughs> you can you can fight for something that maybe is left out of Medicare for all. It doesn't really leave out anything. But I mean, you can you can try if you want to offer like fucking a discount for uh, cosmetic surgery since those pr procedures are usually like financed. So if you have someone that wants to get a facelift, I mean, I guess you could do that. Sure, you can negotiate that if you're a union. They probably won't do that, but it's still, you know, it's important that he's making that clear so they can't attack him. So look, by and large, both of these plans, let me go back up to the top. These are phenomenal. Um, these are absolutely fantastic. Um, one area for improvement here, this is mostly union-centered, but I would like mandatory worker co-ops. Um, but still, unions are incredibly important to the, you know, health of the middle class, right? Because when unions and union membership increases, then everyone else does better. The middle class thrives. People from the lower class are more able to easily move into the middle class. So these are fantastic. And Bernie Sanders is just coming out with policy after policy. This is innovation. This is fresh. And I absolutely love what he's doing. Um, so kudos to Bernie Sanders here, because this is what you have to do when you have other competitors in the race who are trying to... Um, you know, portray themselves as having a plan for everything. Actually, Bernie Sanders is kind of the person who now has a plan for everything. So this is great. You know, this is what a Democratic Party primary is all about. I want to see everyone compete to be the best. And Bernie Sanders is winning by a mile and a half so far, as far as I'm concerned. So in the span of just one week, Bernie Sanders has already proposed sweeping criminal justice reform, as well as a plan to save and expand union membership. But on top of that, he has just proposed a fully fleshed out version of the Green New Deal, which would create 20 million new jobs and potentially avert a climate crisis. Now, this comes with a hefty price tag, but the best part about this is that it would fully pay for itself 
within 15 years because let me remind you this is an investment now there's going to be a little bit of confusion because people will say but i thought that aoc and ed marquis already proposed a green new deal that's correct but the green new deal is not a specific set of policy prescriptions it's essentially an empty slate it's a resolution that says these are our goals which is why there's so many you know corporate democrats like amy klobuchar who are supporting the renew deal because there's nothing specific about it just yet all it says is we need to meet the ipcc's deadline in order to avert a climate crisis so what bernie sanders did was he filled in all the blanks of the green new deal and what he came up with is absolutely comprehensive it's so thorough and bold that the rolling stones rying board asks if he is the new climate change candidate since jay inslee has officially ended his campaign and here's why bernie's plan is so special according to board dubbing the plan as his version of the green new deal sanders wants america's electrical and transportation systems to be powered exclusively by renewable energy by 2030 and for america to be totally decarbonized by 2050 the plan calls for a 16.3 trillion public investment to make this happen which sanders says will pay for itself in only 15 years partially through tax revenue generated from the 20 million new jobs the plan would create to help kick the plan into gear sanders would take executive action to declare the climate crisis a national emergency. Sanders' plan distinguishes itself in how aggressively it targets the fossil fuel industry. Not only does it call for hiking up taxes and penalties on polluters, it taps the Justice Department to pursue litigation against them. They have evaded taxes, desecrated tribal lands, exploited workers, and poisoned communities. The plan reads, President Bernie Sanders will ensure that his Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission investigate these companies and bring suits both criminal and civil for any wrongdoing just as the federal government did with the tobacco industry in the 1980s so that's just kind of a broad overview of the plan but um let's really dive a little bit deeper because this is really comprehensive and i can't possibly go over everything but i will link to the full plan down below and encourage you to read it because this is he's thought of everything this is a plan to mitigate further damage caused by climate change but it also equ equips us with the tools needed to adapt because climate change is already here climate change is a reality so we need to make sure that we are able to adapt and um this plan it really is comprehensive bernie thought of everything so the goal here is to reach 100 percent renewable energy for electricity and transportation by no later then 2030 and completely decarbonized by 2050. So this would meet the IPCC's 12 year deadline. And he makes that crystal clear. He would end unemployment by creating 20 million jobs to address the climate crisis. These will be good paying union jobs with strong benefits and safety standards in steel and auto manufacturing, construction, energy efficiency, retrofitting, coating and server farms, and renewable power plants directly invest an historic 16.3 trillion in public investment towards these efforts in line with the mobilization of resources made during the new deal and world war ii but with an explicit choice to include black indigenous and other minority communities who are systematically excluded in the past a just transition for workers so anyone who's in the fossil fuel industry who have been powering our economy 
will not be left behind. They will have new jobs because that's what the Green New Deal will provide. Declare climate change a national emergency. He can do this with the stroke of a pen, saving American families money by weatherizing homes and lowering energy bills, building affordable and high-quality modern public transportation, um, supporting small family farms by investing in ecologically and regenerative and sustainable agriculture, justice for frontline communities. This is incredibly important and forward-thinking, especially under-resourced groups, communities of color, Native Americans, people with disabilities, children, and the elderly to recover from and prepare for the climate impacts and including through a 40 billion climate justice resiliency fund commit to reducing emissions throughout the world including providing 200 billion to the green climate fund rejoining the paris climate agreement and reasserting the united states's leadership in the global fight against climate change meeting and exceeding our fair share of global emissions reductions making massive investments in research and development investing in conservation and public lands to heal our soils forests and prairie lands so he's going to not only transform our economy to a green economy invest make us a world leader but he's also making sure that smaller underdeveloped countries can catch up we're going to have that fun and that's really important so when we did the montreal protocol um that was important and it was successful we basically closed the hole in our ozone layer because we did something like this we provided a fund for smaller countries that just don't have the resources to invest and do what we're able to do so this fund is really important because they're going to say look you know this is going to be costly and we just we can't afford to invest like you're investing that's why we have this fund this is important this is leadership this could potentially save the planet like the scope of this is just so broad that when I read through this, I got chills. Now again, the number one complaint will be, it's gonna cost 16.3 trillion, really Bernie? So before you complain, if you're conservative or if you're a shit-lib neoliberal, it pays for itself. Quote, experts have scored the plan and its economic effects. We will pay for the massive investment we need to reverse the climate crisis by making the fossil fuel industry pay for their pollution through litigation fees and taxes and eliminating federal fossil fuel subsidies, generating revenue from the wholesale of energy produced by the regional power marketing authorities. Revenues will be collected from 2023 through 2035 and after 2035 electricity will be virtually free aside from operations and maintenance costs, scaling back military spending on maintaining global oil dependence, collecting new income tax revenue from the 20 million new jobs created by the plan, reduced need for federal and state safety net spending due to the creation of millions of good-paying unionized jobs, making the wealthy and large corporations pay their fair share. So as I read this, I feel hopeful. I feel like this is everything that we've needed. This is everything that we've asked for and hoped for. And Kanye Ng put it best. This is it. This is everything. This is what it'll take to save the world. Thank you, Senator Bernie Sanders. And he is a former congressional candidate from Hawaii. So look, Bernie Sanders is the real deal. This election is a no-brainer. This is a no-brainer. If you want to save the economy and the planet, vote for Bernie Sanders. If you know someone in your family who is voting for Joe Biden because they've 
been duped by the mainstream media and elites to believe that he's more electable. Tell them the truth. That Bernie Sanders is our best bet, not only against Trump, but against the climate crisis that we're facing. I mean, the scale of this is so huge, it really can't be overstated. So this is what politicians who support the Green New Deal should be doing. This is the most comprehensive climate change proposal of any candidate, just based on my reading. Now, certainly, I'll have to wait, you know, to give my full judgment because I want to take into account scoring from the Sierra Club and uh, other green organizations, environmental clubs and whatnot. But just based on this, this is absolutely huge. And it's exactly what not just America needs, but the planet needs. Bernie Sanders can literally save the planet if we just elect him. This is easy. Not even a decision. The only real choice in 2020 is Bernie. Let's not make the mistake that we did in 2016, guys. Let's elect Bernie. I am the chosen one. So I'll be honest, I really don't know how to set up this segment. All I know is that Donald Trump put out a tweet where he quoted someone who likened his presidency and him to the second coming of Christ, literally. And on top of that, Donald Trump gave this really long, unhinged interview, and something from that interview stood out. So let me get to that tweet. He tweeted, Thank you to Wayne Allen Root for the very nice words. Now, for those of you who don't know, Wayne Allen Root is a Trump sycophant who hosts his own radio show. The quote reads, President Trump is the greatest president for Jews and for Israel in the history of the world, not just America. He is the best president for Israel in the history of the world, and the Jewish people in Israel love him, like he's the king of Israel. They love him like he is the second coming of God. But American Jews don't know or like him. They don't even know what they're doing or saying anymore. It makes no sense. But that's okay. If he keeps doing what he's doing, he's good for all Jews, blacks, gays, everyone, and importantly, he's good for everyone in America who wants a job, end quote. Donald Trump then followed up with a wow exclamation and then tagged Newsmax TV, Fox and Friends, and OANN for um, whatever reason. And of course, he later retweeted out what is presumably the video version of that quote, which I didn't watch because you know, I have to limit my intake of stupidity to an extent before I end up catching it myself. So obviously, the quote itself is bizarre, it's unhinged, it's anti-Semitic pretty brazenly, and he's saying, Jews in Israel love him like he's the second coming of God. Okay, I don't know anybody who would say that I'm like the second coming of Christ, um, but first of all, if somebody said something like that about me, even if their intentions were pure, they wanted to compliment me, uh, one, I would question their sanity level, and two, I absolutely would not share what they said about me because, I mean, talk about, like, filleting yourself. How embarrassing. You retweeted or you quoted someone in a tweet who said that you were like the second coming of Christ. That is some weird shit. I mean, this is delusions of grandeur. What are you doing? Donald Trump, obviously, you know, he has a lot of screws loose, but it's like we're watching him deteriorate mentally at such an alarming pace. Now, on top of that, 
he was talking to the press about his trade war with China. He said something that was a little bit peculiar, to say the least. Take a look. This isn't my trade war. This is a trade war that should have taken place a long time ago by a lot of other presidents. Over the last five or six years, China's made $500 billion. $500 billion. Ripped it out of the United States. And not only that, if you take a look, intellectual property theft. Add that to it. And add a lot of other things to it. So somebody, excuse me, somebody had to do it. I am the chosen one. Somebody had to do it. So I'm taking on China. He said this and he also quoted someone who likened him to the second coming of Christ or of God. His narcissism is getting progressively worse. I am the chosen one. I mean, I, I don't know what to say anymore. I don't know what to say anymore. To say that he has the intelligence of a toddler would be too kind. I think that's being overly charitable because this individual is, is he like literally delusional? The way he talks is not normal. I mean, this is the president of the United States, the most powerful country in the world, biggest economy, biggest military. The fact that this guy has his finger on the nuclear button, like that's something that we can never take for granted. This is the person who can unilaterally choose to just end the world on a whim if he's in a pissy mood. That should scare all of us. Like, we've just kind of gotten used to the crazy antics of Donald Trump, but never take that for granted. That person is the president who can just, like, launch a nuke at any minute. How fucking bizarre is the time that we are living in? Like, people are going to look back a 100 years from now, if the species survives, which it probably won't, and they're going to think, what was wrong with the world? What was wrong with America that they elected that as president? Some weird dude who slathers orange on his face and has a bird's nest on his head. That guy was the president who's a blubbering buffoon? I mean, I feel so embarrassed. I don't know how anyone can be proud to say that's that's my president, but boomers love him. Like There was a tweet underneath Donald Trump's tweet where he quoted the guy who said that he was like the second coming of Christ. And it was just straight up, you know, pure craziness that you'd expect from Donald Trump supporters. These people are sycophants. This is a cult. This isn't like a group of people that you can persuade to wake up. You can't convince them and get them to move to your view, ideolo ideologically speaking. These people are too far gone. Trump supporters, most of them are just too far gone and it's just really sad to think that nothing can penetrate their brains you know nothing that you can present them with no amount of evidence will suffice they will worship and adore donald trump no matter what and you know i laughed at that tweet that was under you know donald trump's tweet but at the same time you know it's sad you laugh at it because what else can you do you laugh to keep from crying but like the times that we are living in is absolutely fucking insane, and we just cannot get used to this. This is not normal. This is absolute fucking insanity. We have a president that is a fucking clown. 
So I know a lot of my socialist viewers just love to make fun of John Delaney because he was booed and pretty much every single tweet that he puts out gets ratioed, but like it or not, John Delaney is starting to pick up some serious momentum. Now, I'll admit that when he first started out, things were a little bit rocky. You know, he'd only get a measly four, sometimes five people to his events. But with time, that number started to steadily grow. He recently attended a house party with seven people. Count them. Seven people. And at a recent event held in Iowa, he garnered one of his largest crowds yet of 11 people. Yes, that is double digits. So like it or not, John Delaney, his campaign presence is only increasing. And as Adam Gabbett of The Guardian writes, John Delaney has poured a staggering 24 million of his own money into running for president. He has been campaigning for the White House for more than two years and in that time has held more than 200 events in Iowa. On one recent Thursday morning, these efforts translated into a grand total of 11 people coming out to see Delaney at a campaign event in the small town of Algona in the north of the state. Delaney strode into Miller's Sports Bar and Grill, one of the chain of bars across Iowa, just after 10 a.m. One of his team <laughs> had taped a couple of Delaney 2020 campaign posters to a wall in the back of the bar and a sign-up list was on a table. The crowd, all silver-haired apart from a 30-something man <laughs> who walked in late, were sitting patiently at four different tables. Clad in the off-duty politician's uniform of open-necked shirt, blue jeans, and casual brown shoes, Delaney got to work vigorously shaking 11 hands. <laughs> One member of the crowd was immediately impressed with the 56-year-old. You actually look even better than you do on TV, one woman said. Quote, I think I'm just going to stay around here, Delaney quipped. If Delaney was <laughs> if Delaney was disappointed with the turnout, <laughs> he didn't show it. Besides, in a way, the 11-person crowd was a positive. The night before, on Delaney's Facebook page, just two people said, just two people said they would attend, and one was his campaign director. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I'm crying so I think after reading that it's safe to say he is unstoppable and that is not his largest crowd yet, believe it or not, because at one event, as you can see from this photograph, there were about 20 people in attendance, and that's probably the largest crowd yet. So at the rate he's going, he's on track to attract crowds of about 25 or more potentially by December. The Delaney train isn't stopping anytime soon. By next year, November of 2020, I could actually imagine a scenario where 40 to 50 people show up. So, I mean, <laughs> obviously I am going out of my way to be facetious and I'm kind of being a dick admittedly, but I can't help it. Um, This is just sad. Look, if I chose to run for president, I'm not old enough, you know, to be president, but if I chose to run... I guarantee you that I would get bigger crowds than John Delaney. In fact, 
I would bet that I would quadruple the crowd size of John Delaney. Um, and this is a multimillionaire who has poured $24 million into his campaign. I mean, this is genuinely embarrassing. After learning that he poured that much money into self-financing, I actually understand now why he hasn't dropped out yet, because he made an investment that isn't, you know, panning out too well, so he's going to remain committed to it, even if it's clearly going nowhere, but just the reports of, you know, these events, the pictures, I'm genuinely starting to enjoy seeing him run because it's like, <laughs> regardless of all the walls he keeps running into, he just keeps going. You know, this could be flipped around and turned into an inspirational story if he wasn't such a douchebag, but, um, you know, he is saying that he's going to be in this for the long haul. Like, after seeing John Hickenlooper and Jay Inslee drop out, he has reiterated that he's not going anywhere anytime soon. So, I mean, he's going to continue to um, plan out these uh, events. You know, maybe next week he'll show up at a McDonald's, and there's going to be like 15 people, not counting the customers that are already in the lobby. So we'll see. Um, I will continue to watch and um, let you know if there's any developments with regard to John Delaney's campaign. Certainly excited. I'm sure that that 11 people made his day. Hello, everyone. I am here with a candidate running to represent Arizona's first congressional district. Her name is Eva Putsova, and she's here to tell us about her campaign. Eva, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to see that you're running for Congress because I looked a little bit at your record when you served in city council for um, Flagstaff. And before we even get started, I have to go over some of the things that you accomplished because this this is really remarkable. So first of all, you were instrumental in increasing Flagstaff's minimum wage to fifteen fifty. You initiated the city's first climate action plan. You led the charge to pass an Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, you passed a resolution encouraging Congress to act when it comes to dreamers and immigration reform. So you were incredibly effective. And now you want to take what you've learned in Flagstaff to Congress. So tell us what made you decide to make the jump to national politics. Well, uh, we face urgent challenges, healthcare, climate change, immigration, inequality, racism, and we can no longer accept timid, hesitant leadership that prioritizes corporate interests. We must put people first. And this is really why I'm running. Uh, I'm not afraid. I think um, that we need uh, a very different Congress uh, we need uh, people in Congress who cannot be bought by corporate interests. And uh, we need those who are ready to fight and work for the people of this country. And it's really great to see everyone just kind of standing up and running. And what I'm seeing is just ordinary people who are choosing to run for Congress, you know, truck drivers, people who just are working every day, nine to fives. And that's really great. And I love your story. And I kind of wanted you to talk about this because you became a citizen in 2007. You're from Slovakia. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, what it's like to fight from the perspective of being, you know, an immigrant who moved here and seeing all the vitriol that are being, you know, spe that's being spewed by the president and Republicans disproportionately towards Latin American immigrants. How does that like how do you process that as an immigrant yourself? 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I became a U.S. citizen in 2007, and the journey to become a U.S. citizen took about seven years. And uh, so I understand uh, what you have to go through when uh, the case is straightforward and there are no complications, and just uh, how much paperwork, uh, how much money uh, one needs to uh, stay in the process until um, they become naturalized. What I also realized during this process is that um, we all have privileges, but they are relative. So when I was waiting in line uh, to be seen by immigration officer, there were many other people in Phoenix standing in line with me, uh, many of them people of color, many of them with uh, maybe their English wasn't uh, as perfect. And I saw the different treatment that um, was applied on different people. And certainly, uh, color of the skin uh, is a factor. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a white woman, so as a white person, I have certain privilege. Um, I'm a woman, so maybe my privilege in that respect is a little bit less. But then when I open my mouth, everybody can tell that I'm an immigrant. I will never lose my accent, so please don't ask me. <laughs> and, and, and so then my privilege uh, is diminished. Uh, and there are many, many people who are in a much worse um, relative position who face discrimination because who, who they are, where they were born, and um, I think it's wrong. You know, I grew up in, a, um, in Slovakia, former Eastern Bloc country. Uh, we knocked down the walls and got rid of the borders because, um, you know, as people, we felt we belong to Europe. We belong with everybody else. And I think that's the direction I would like to see this country and to go, not the opposite direction, um, you know, creating barriers um, between people. Everything you say, you know, seeing that firsthand, it really makes sense as to why your entire platform is basically centered around like human compassion. You're a huge advocate for indigenous people's rights and you're fighting for single payer Medicare for all. So there's a lot of things that I believe you are going to advocate for and I trust that you will do such a great job because you have this experience. But this is one thing that I always ask the people who are running for Congress. There's so many things that need fixing currently in our country, and I don't know where I would begin personally if I were, you know, elected to Congress. So just within that first year, let's say you're elected, you will obviously join the squad with AOC and Ilhan Omar because you're definitely one of those types of progressives. What do you think you personally would try to fight for the most just within that first year? Because you can't pick everything and it's tough, but what's most important to you? So I do believe that we can do multiple things at the same time, but I do know that everything takes uh, energy and uh, resources. I do think that uh, climate change is something that we cannot postpone. I think the reason why we are where we are with climate change is because uh, we had a bipartisan inaction for decades, and that has to stop. I also think that um, because I'm an immigrant, I'm very invested in a complete immigration overhaul. And that's also something that I feel cannot wait. Uh, people are hurting. And then, of course, um, you know, ACA uh, did not really address the cost that uh, we pay for healthcare. 
and that can be addressed if we move forward with a single-payer type of system like Medicare for All. And uh, uh, there's no reason why these are big pieces of legislation, all three of them, but we absolutely need to invest in retooling our economy to be uh, a green economy uh, so we can actually uh, enjoy the healthcare and that we can uh, take care of all people in a compassionate way, including um, uh, immigrants. And that's fantastic. I like that, you know, you stressed we can do multiple things at once. Um, but yeah, these are absolutely things that I agree with and other issues um, that you care about based on the pledges that you've signed. So you've signed the No Fossil Fuels Pledge. You've signed the pledge to um, codify the 28th Amendment, which basically gets money out of politics. And when Eva, when you look at her website, it's apparent that she's not like mincing words. She's not saying we need to get the dark money out of politics. There's no caveat. She wants to get money out of politics. And that really sets her apart from other people, namely her opponent, because I want to talk about him. His name is Tom O'Halloran. He, nationally speaking, isn't very well known, but he doesn't really stand for much. Like I checked out his website just before jumping on to talk with um, Eva here. And the policies are incredibly vague. There's no plan to reform healthcare. Just this vague, you know, assertion that I'm going to defend Medicare and Social Security. Um, we need to invest in education. And I don't know what any of this means. But when you look at his donors, it becomes a little bit more clear. He takes super PAC money. He took 4000 from AT&T. He's getting money from Steny Hoyer and Nancy Pelosi. So I want to ask you this, Evo, because you're not taking corporate PAC money. You are clearly principled. But one thing that's always interesting to me about these races is it's like David versus Goliath. You are putting yourself at a disadvantage, but it's important because you're demonstrating to people in AZ1 that um, you're principled and you're going to stand up for them. So talk a little bit about the struggles of running a non-corrupted, if you will, campaign um, and how it's a little bit more difficult to do that and what you think you need to do to win because you're not taking that corporate money. Well, uh, you, you're right, you know, we're not taking uh, any money from corporate interests or from a lobbyist. This is completely people-powered campaign. Uh, if the viewers feel inspired, I hope they will visit evaforcongress.com and uh, help us uh, with our campaign um, that puts people first. And uh, of course, you know, it, it is a different way to organize uh, your campaign and the operation. Uh, we depend on uh, uh, people who uh, volunteer with our campaign. Um, we have to organize in a way and be very smart about uh, where and how we spend money. Um, ultimately, I do believe that uh, organized people outperform organized money. You cannot buy enthusiasm. You cannot buy the kind of support that you get from uh, volunteers who are uh, calling voters, who are knocking on the doors. That cannot be bought. And uh, um, I feel that we need to do these kind of campaigns because until we can legislate or change the Constitution through an amendment, can we, until we can legislate uh, getting money out of politics, we have to have a whole bunch of representatives in Congress who understand how important it is and they uh, run their campaigns with a high level of integrity and they don't allow themselves to be bought by corporate interests.
it makes such a big difference like you can see in the way that they govern like when you just compare like alexandria ocasio cortez and ilhan omar to other democrats it's clear that there's nothing holding them back like if they say they support a policy position it's not necessarily because there's these lobbyists or you know their donors in their ears saying this is what we want you to support it's just based on them believing what they need to do to help people and that's why i think that these types of campaigns are getting a lot more popular we're seeing more and more people like you run for congress who's not taking corporate money and you know it's evident that other democrats who are funded by large multinational corporations they're getting nervous and they don't like this because this makes them look really bad you know if you have someone who's challenging you um and they don't take corporate money then they're going to have to find a way to convince people that they actually are with them and not with their donors. And that's tough to do in this political climate when most people see that money has too big of an influence, you know, um, in society and in politics. So can you talk a little bit about your opponent, Tom O'Halloran? Because what I like to do with people who aren't challenging like the big names Mm -hmm. um is have you make the case as to why you're better because i think that it's evident when you just look at your website and compare yours to his that you actually stand for something but you know for someone who doesn't have a really big name opponent it is a little bit more difficult to get your name out there because everybody wants to see steny hoyer and nancy pelosi defeated but we do have a lot of other democrats who are just basically keeping the seat warm who aren't doing anything that needs to go so talk about tom o'halloran because he seems like he's someone who i mean isn't doing much, if anything at all. Why does he need to be challenged, in your opinion? Right. Uh, that, that's a big question for uh, the voters. And I know, you know, who has time to follow any particular representative or, you know, elected of, official in another office closely to keep track of their votes, right? And so, you know, sometimes we learn more about people when they have an opponent in the primary because their, um, vo their voting record uh, is up for scrutiny. So, you know, in addition to the fact that um, I don't take money from corporate interests and my opponent takes money from health insurance industry and arms industry and private prison industry and essentially every uh, single industry, including sugar lobby, um, in addition to that, uh, I would not cast certain votes that he has cast. For example, I would not vote to deregulate uh, banks and uh, weaken the Dodd-Frank uh, Act. I wouldn't uh, criminalize immigrants by voting for uh, Kate's law. Uh, I wouldn't uh, weaken just recently the Raise the Wage Act by introducing amendment that allows future Congress to delay uh, wage increases or pause the wage increases. I think there are many other things that we can uh, look at his voting record and uh, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, but it's not, it's also not what he does, what he, what but what he doesn't do, and that is to me at the, you know, core of uh, my primary challenge. I'm running because I really think that we can no longer uh, be uh, inactive when it comes to climate change. I really think that uh, we have to pursue large-scale 
investments in retooling uh, the economy and do so in an equitable way, uh, very much in line how the Green New Deal proposes that we do it. Um, you know, I don't think that uh, just giving um, or including uh, hearing aids in Medicare is sufficient to reform our healthcare system. We really don't have a healthcare system. I don't know uh, how about, uh, you know, your viewers, but I got sick on Memorial Day weekend. It was on Monday. The, in a city of 72,000 people, there was not a single facility where you can go and get care for your health issue. There was an emergency room available. That was it. There wasn't a single urgent care office open, right? A lot of times people talk about, oh, we want to keep our primary doctors, blah, 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 right? Well, most people don't have primary doctors. Um, you know, when I did go to urgent care, my copay was $75. $75 to be seen, you know, for something that maybe I should just stay at home for, but I don't know. I'm not a, you know, professional and it's my help. Um, and so these are the things that um, our current representative is not addressing. Is not addressing the fact that we don't have, actually most people do not have access to uh, quality healthcare. We don't have specialists that are available um, near where people live. And the cost of healthcare is um, so high that some people actually choose to take Uber to hospital when they should be calling an ambulance because they're, um, you know, they need actually that kind of care and they're risking um, their health by going to the hospital by Uber. So that's what, what it is. It's, I think we need uh, real leadership in Congress. And I'm so glad that you brought up the Uber example, because that is one of the many reasons why or that I kind of use to demonstrate how dysfunctional our healthcare system is. And I always talk about how, like, how many people do you know that had to do a GoFundMe to pay for medical bills, even if they had insurance? You know, it, it's just, it's crazy to me. And what you said about people not having primary care doctors is so on point because like I always make the point when people say well you know oh well we don't want to get rid of private insurance because people want to keep their insurance and I always say no people actually don't care about their private insurance they care about their doctors but I mean a lot of people don't have primary care doctors I don't think I've had a primary care doctor since uh, I've been a kid so these are issues that aren't being talked about and it really takes someone who has to deal with it who doesn't have the money and the privilege that someone in washington has to know what's actually going on like tom o'halloran he has healthcare that i'm sure is really solid so he doesn't deal with all these issues that normal people have to deal with so it's just it's nice to see so many people who are not robots who are regular people running for congress it's really refreshing so i don't think that you have to do much more to convince my viewers i think that they're fully on board if you're in az1 uh, tell people when the date of the primary is. It's in August 2020, correct? Yes, it's on August 4th. And, uh, you know, we have uh, about one year to go. Um, but 
um, for people who don't know, uh, Arizona's first congressional district is the 11th largest district uh, in the country geographically. It's actually three times as big as the country where I was born. Uh, and uh, so this is, you know, very rural district. Uh, the largest city is Flagstaff, where I am, and that's about, you know, 72,000 people. Um, and so there's a lot of ground to cover, uh, all of doors to knock on and all the calls to make. And so, uh, again, if people go to evaforcongress.com, uh, regardless where they are in the country, they can help us. Of course, if they have uh, extra $5, they can uh, help us financially. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of work and we have been already um at this campaign for the last six months. But I want to go back to just point out something about healthcare. You know, we oftentimes talk about, you know, the cost of healthcare and, um, you know, how for the individuals, how it is important that we have Medicare for all. But I think from small business perspective, we should realize that today, small businesses are probably not competitive uh, when it comes to, um, their uh, talent, their labor with uh, large corporations who that can afford to uh, provide health insurance uh, to their employees. And if we had Medicare for all or, you know, single payer type of system and their employees would be covered by this system and some of and these proposals that are on the table actually exclude the first $2 million of um, uh, payroll, from uh, Medicare taxes, this would hugely benefit small businesses. And so uh, it's not just the individual, you know, individuals that should really be interested in, in uh, um, fighting for this, um, what I think is a human right, um, but also from a business perspective. Uh, people will not have to make decisions whether they can uh, seek jobs with small businesses. And that's such a really important way to sell Medicare for all because, you know, we've heard this mentioned before, but I don't think people say that enough. It really is a great selling point for small businesses. So the website is evaforcongress.com, and I'm going to do my usual spiel for Eva that I do for every candidate. This is not just about CD1 in Arizona. This is a national movement. What Eva will be doing is not just fighting for her constituents, but you as well. And my favorite example, because I have a lot of student loan debt, is how Ilhan Omar, she's not my representative, but she just sponsored legislation that would cancel all student loan debt. That affects me personally, and she's across the country. So this is a national movement, and if you can't donate a lot, try to donate your time. If you can't donate your time, maybe a dollar or two dollars, it really does go a long way. Um, and it's important that we elect people like Eva. And this is not going to be the last that you hear from her because um, she's running a great campaign. She's blowing up. So Eva, thank you so much for coming on the program. Is there anything that you wanted to say before we go? Well, thank you for having me. And I'm so excited that, you know, we have so many great candidates around the country running these uh, campaigns and not being afraid to run with high level of integrity without the corporate money and uh, by being powered by people. And so it, it's exciting to be part of, uh, what, because what we're doing really, we're not just trying to change the policy directions of this country, we're really trying to change the rules of politics.
that's such an important point to make. And I'm glad that you brought up all the people running because I, I said this last year in uh, or the year before, um, you know, in 2016, there was like a number of progressives running that maybe I could count on one hand, two hands. In 2018, it got a lot more difficult to keep track of everyone that was running who is progressive, you know, grassroots. And now, you know, for the 2020 cycle, there are so many candidates that I, I, I don't even know half of them. So it's just, it's so exciting. We really see this movement materializing. And even if it's easy to be cynical, when you look at the bigger picture and see what's happening and all the people like you who are running um, and rising up, it, it really, it gives me hope. So thank you for running and giving me hope and other people hope. And we will be watching closely because um, I, I'm looking forward to your election. I think you can beat Tom because um, I don't know what there is to like there. <laughs> I, I know, I know we will. Awesome. Thanks. Well, take care. Again, it's EbbaForCongress.com. Please pitch in and help her get elected. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the show, as usual, we're not going to leave without thanking all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members. And I also want to send a special shout out to all of our SoundCloud and iTunes listeners. You guys are all absolutely fantastic. Thank you for your ongoing support. I really appreciate it. Uh, anyways, that's all I've got for you. So I will see you next week. Uh, this has been the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo. I will talk to you all later. Peace.